Hello and welcome to the Animation Communication Podcast, your source for discussion about animation, film, fandom, and more. So please, join your host, I Love Kim Possible A Lot, or KP, and Lauren Kizich, the Abbey Roadie, for today's discussion. If you like what you hear, please remember to support by giving a like, a follow, as well as subscribing to the main I Love Kim Possible A Lot channel on YouTube. Spread the word, and keep being a part of a great community. This episode contains heavy adult language and is not appropriate for young children. Can't! Hi everyone, welcome to this week's episode of Animation Communication. What week is it? I don't know, it depends when you're listening, I guess, whatever. So, <laughs> by this point, um, we should our, have our nice pretty um, Halloween overlay. Yay, spook, spook time. So, um, joining me as usual is Lauren. Um, say hi, Lauren. Hello, everybody. And then we have um, J.J. Conway, who's a cool dude, and I'm going to let him introduce himself first because he's going to do the news segment with us, which is rare for people, like, who, like actual, indi- actual industry guests to like want to like hang around with us because we stink, I know. So, um, <laughs> J.J., who are you? Tell us about your life. Hey, uh, I'm J.J. Conway. I'm currently a, or I'm a director at Nickelodeon Animation. Uh, currently working on the rise of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles movie. Uh, I've been in animation about oh, almost about 10 years in January. So about a decade. Uh, wow. Lauren and I went to the same school many years apart. Mm-hmm. Uh, Loyola Marymount. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm from Southern California. Grew up at the beach. Got sand in my lungs and in my blood, so yeah. you know. Yeah, and the first and the first five seconds of you talking is just like this is not only a California guy, but this is definitely like he embodies Michelangelo. Like <laughs> <laughs> he's on the right show. I, there have been there were times where like I had to do scratch for a character that Greg Sipes voiced uh-huh. for Sheldon on on uh, Rise of the Turtles, and they like like months later they called me up and like hey jg like that one scene is that you or is that sipes <laughs> that happened a couple of times but yeah sipes was mikey in 2012 which is why i thought of that yeah right yeah so like we know people sometimes so anyway um so we got a couple headlines and i because i thought there was interesting it was interesting because for those who are listening to this like way later and don't know the context of the time period in which we record we, we are recording we are still in covid so a lot of the hollywood industry in general is heavy dependent on animation because people can do that at home and like not live action stuff where people have to like touch faces and stuff so um <laughs> anyway so that's kind of slowly starting to influence things as um stuff is coming out so Okay, Lauren, I'll let you do the yeah. first story because you like that that IP. So tell us about it. <laughs> okay, so yeah, I am personally super duper excited because one of my latest uh, COVID uh, obsessions, I guess you could say, the something I've been getting into a lot of shows uh, since starting COVID, and I just dove way you know head over heels into Lupin the Third, and I am just like so far deep into this anime, and I just keep finding more stuff, and I'm just obsessed with it. But anyway, uh, the uh, Lupin the Third, the first movie, which uh, came out earlier this year, 
the first CG animated Lupin movie. Uh, it's going to release its English dub in the States very soon. Uh, and I think that also might potentially mean a theatrical release as well. Uh, but well, we're, it, it was only just announced recently, uh, like this week as of recording <laughs> this. Um, and so, uh, so it may be sometime this month, which as by, by the time you guys are listening to this, it's October. So uh, we're anticipating it might be October cause there was no date set for its release, but I'm personally really excited about it. They got the original English voice cast back from, uh, parts two and three. I believe it's part three as well, but mostly part two and other incarnations of the show. So you got Tony Oliver, you got Richard Epcar, you got Lex Lang. I mean, it's it, it they pulled out all the stops. So it makes me very excited to see this uh, coming to fruition. Uh, and can you explain yeah. what it is for people who don't know, like me? The okay, only con- so, okay, the uh, only context the that third. I have is Lauren did fan art that looked like Abe Lincoln. And I was like, sexy Abe Lincoln. And she's like, no, Babe Lincoln. I'm just like, God, that's good. <laughs> Jigen is precious, precious to me. Uh, <laughs> um, he doesn't get enough love. Uh, but anyway, uh, Loop on the Third is, uh, it's an, one of like the longest running anime series of all time. Uh, it's been running since like, I want to say 1969 or 1970 i want to say 1970 um and it's basically a heist series so it's about uh our son lupin the third who is the uh grandson yeah the grandson yes grandson or great grandson uh yeah i think grandson of our son lupin who is supposed to be a uh, a legendary thief in uh french literature and so then he has this whole ragtag team of of experts and uh, Daisuke Jigen, my favorite, is uh, he's an expert uh, uh, gunman and then he's a sharpshooter. You have Goemon Ishikawa, who is uh, he is a master uh, swordsman and he's a samurai, so he's just like wicked good. And then you have uh, Fujiko Mine, who is Lupin's on and off girlfriend, who is also the femme fatale who always tries to take the loot for herself in the end. But sometimes she'll sometimes she'll work with them sometimes. But uh, and then they're all always being chased by the wily coyote to their roadrunner, who is Inspector Zenigata, and he's uh, he's just like ab- absolutely obsessed with wanting to catch Lupin because it's is apparently his bloodline has been constantly pursuing the Lupin <laughs> bloodline. <laughs> so it's like he's just it's his destiny to just chase him. I don't know if it's ever to catch him, but it's to chase him. <laughs> so anyway, it's it, and it's a wacky fun series. Lots of mysteries, lots of finding treasure, and just lots of hijinks. It's good. And the trailer looks gorgeous. Ah, it, it, it looks so good. It jumped like the jump to three D was looked so seamless. It looks so good. The character models. Uh, if you guys ever see the trailer, the trailer's out. Um, uh, especially if you see it in the Japanese, you'll get a lot more clips out of it. Uh, if you compare it side by side with some of the animation and the art style of the original anime series, and uh, it's it just, they look exactly like the source material. It, they're so on model, and yet they take them and make them a little bit more uh, fresh race and new so that it works in 3D even better. Um, and it's just like, it's just, it looks so good. Just so good. I'm, I'm, I, I actually, that's what originally piqued my interest in Lupin was seeing that trailer. I'm like, I have no idea what this is, but this looks really awesome. <laughs> the trailer is yeah. what made you uh, take the dive? You hadn't seen it yeah. before? 
yeah it's like because it's funny oh, because man. i've seen a i've seen a bunch of anime but i had not seen that one and i, and I actually discovering this year how many don't know about lupon i'm actually kind of shocked considering Whoa. how long it's been around so, so legendary uh, <laughs> miyazaki made a lupon movie how can you not yeah, exactly know? and i did yes and i did watch castle cagliostro and i've so watched good. it several times now so <laughs> it's yeah, so, so good yeah meanwhile yeah jj and i are gushing about lupon so obviously this is a sign if you haven't checked out lupon you probably jj should. you're on the uh, right <laughs> podcast <laughs> <laughs> You should probably just bring it back on just so we could just gush about Lupin next time. <laughs> it's gonna be Yeah, we'll just talk about cartoons that, next time. That's gonna be too much work for the editor. Forget the longer like, guy. Freaking, why are there six hours of these two just talking? <laughs> I was gonna say, so like what I gathered from that is like Kim Possible kind of meets Sly Cooper kind of vibe. Yeah, it's uh, and also I guess if you want to say it's almost like uh, if Kim Possible meets a fish called Wanda. Okay. <laughs> and Ocean's Eleven and <laughs> and and uh, Looney Tunes cartoons. Okay. It's it's really <laughs> wild, especially like it uh, from what I'm very I adult. Yeah, it, very like, adult. Yeah, I mean like well sometimes you have like the Miyazaki you know film which is you know not not R rated, but mm-hmm. but then you have like some of the more recent ones like. Uh, was it Goemon's blood spree and yes. spray and was it Jigen's gravestone and a mm-hmm. uh, woman called Fujiko Mine? Uh, and mm-hmm. those are like, <laughs> those are those are pretty R rated. Oh my god! Like R rated, <laughs> especially uh, R rated blood spray. So oh, oh my so god! So R rated sexy time <laughs> so or R rated? Oh okay, that answers that question. Uh, gore and gore and sexy okay. times because yeah. let's just say that there's there's i mean obviously in something with a heist and then there's guns and and swords and all that kind of stuff yeah of course there's going to be blood and some when or at least push to the extreme when you take a prop- property like lupon and then you just make it r-rated but then on top of that lupon is horny so yeah. <laughs> and fujiko knows that yeah and plays off of it every single time he doesn't yeah. ever learn okay now i'm just <laughs> meanwhile jigen's the only one with the head on his shoulders like stop it <laughs> now i'm just more confused but okay spectacular um <laughs> and it always looks just so good the style <laughs> always looks so good um yeah it's just like if nothing else even if you hate the story which you, i can't imagine like it's just always gorgeous to look at you know, be yeah. it like Castle of Cagliostro, which is, you know, that's Miyazaki, so it looks amazing. But, you know, like more recent ones, the, uh, you know, Bob, I, I'm not sure the filmmaker, but, you know, the one who did Fujiko, or well, the Fujiko Mine series, and then the mm-hmm. more recent movies, like the the style on those is, it looks just like Lupin, but it has like a, like a little more flair to it, and it looks awesome. Mm-hmm. But then you have this like CG movie, which looks super true to the cartoony roots, and but it still looks freaking gorgeous mm-hmm. it's like so it's just so lovingly crafted down to the most minute detail that i'm like man i'm really excited i really really want to see this movie like right now just give it to me now <laughs> oh i wish i could see like a theater screening of it but oh, bum, 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 what's a theater <laughs> i don't remember <laughs> Not since the Sonic times. Oh my God. That was one of the last movies I saw in theaters. I think the last one I actually saw might have been the uh, My Hero Academia movie, but like, oh, dude, yeah. dude, like my last 
like three or no two of my last three movies were definitely sonic and cats and i'm not super happy about that <laughs> i mean at least they updated the sonic model so like you were in for like a little better time <laughs> and what do you know they updated the cats movie too oh. <laughs> what's well, the only american movie to get a patch after three days <laughs> Oh man, it's like that. That's like a whole podcast. So, um, I guess Lauren, do you want to switch between the headlines since I have two leading and you have yeah. two leading? Okay. So this is something that I wasn't really paying attention to, but because everyone's dependent on on online shopping these days because COVID, especially like as we discussed in the 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 what was it religion versus fandom where people like to you know, express their, you know, themselves through their clothing, whether it be, like, your Jesus fandom mm -hmm. or your, like, whatever, horse fandom, whatever these th things are. Um, so mm -hmm. what I gathered is via Hot Topics website, um, I guess the Her Universe line just dropped their fall clothing-like line, if you that's what you want to call it. Um, and so for, I, I really like the Her Universe brand. It's started by, I forget. I didn't put her name on the outline, um, but the the voice actor for Ahsoka on Clone Wars and Rebels, and you know she's the main voice. I don't know, Lauren, if you want to Google it in a second, you can. But anyway, <laughs> so she, I guess she worked with Disney to start this like her universe kind of um, line, and it's basically more casual, um, you know, Disney and other properties dreamworks properties mostly disney but you know or star wars which is also owned by disney you know where it's ashley Eckstein. Eckstein. ashley Eckstein. oh ashley i was like what does that mean but i was like oh okay that's her name <laughs> <laughs> is that code so anyway um from what i get i mean i'm not my family in general is big Star Warsy, but I am like I have like a six out of ten like knowledge of lore and stuff, and I know most lore. But then everyone just like tell me about that thing that was in the thing, and I'm like, I just I'm just here for Baby Yoda, guys. So anyway, so wait, you didn't read the three accompanying novels that came with the Mandalorian and then the spinoff? All uh, I know as far as you're not up to date on all of that. <laughs> All I know is that I guess George Lucas really didn't want to explore the Yoda species time timeline thingy, like just general species thing. But then, like when he lost Star Wars, Disney's like, "Fuck yeah!" or like, "Hell yeah!" whatever. I guess this can be a sense a, a non-censored episode now. But anyway, um, and so they were just like, "We'll just do it," and then they made this thing that turned into a meme, and now it's everywhere. But anyway, so I know a little bit. I know stuff. But anyway, I really admire um, <laughs> Ashley because, like, a lot of times at conventions and stuff, she'll, like, wear, like, Ahsoka-themed stuff. And I'm just like, that's 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 what you do because she's the character. You get it? You, you get it? So, um, you know, I know I know her universe did some light stuff with She-Ra, too. So I have, like, a She-Ra jacket. So it's really nice, like, you know, IP-themed clothing that is more adulty and not just, like, I'd, I can't fit into this, like, extra small children's shirt worth um with memes or whatever all over it so my aesthetic for most of the time like is 70 percent like fandom or you know just cartoon stuff because i like to do that so you know they had all the the disney dresses for the or a couple of the disney dresses for the princesses and kind of like a disney bound light style and they had like some 
some overall some new overalls that I think are tangled in cocoa themes. So it's neat. I think Hot Topic has it in some other places if you want to check it out. But yeah, I really like the whole idea of like female fandom themed clothing because that's kind of my jam. So yeah, I know you don't have any money, but if you want to spend it on yourself, then there you go. Or just wait till things go on sale. That's fine too. Okay, Lauren, it's your turn. <laughs> Oh, I was going to say, speaking of Hot Topic, don't you have a little something else to add from Hot Topic? Well, I'll, I'll let you do the other one first, and then I'll, I'll go all right, on that. All right, all right. Well, okay. Well, back to animation. <laughs> um, well, the, they're all animation-themed, so it's yeah, well, yeah, the, the, Well, for about a film, about a movie. Okay. I was going to say. It was about, so specifically about Red Shoes and the Seven Dwarfs. Now, you've probably heard about it, probably not, but uh, whether you have or not, uh it's a Korean animated comedy that was released last year, a few years ago, but I think it's, I think it was actually a couple years ago. And then it was, it was just kind of funky on its distribution. And then it's supposed to be coming out, uh, this, this year, I think, uh, it's yeah. In the, in the United States and, uh, go figure that, uh, our buddy Tony Bancroft was voice director on that movie. So, uh, he got to direct the, the English voice cast. So that was cool. Yeah. And uh, and for those of you who have probably heard about the controversy of the Red Shoes release uh, overseas originally, um, it's because the marketing department screwed up on it because uh, they made it look like they were fat shaming because the main character, uh, played by Chloe Grace Moretz, who's actually Snow White, uh is actually uh she's actually like a heavier girl in the movie and she puts on these shoes that make her look young and like like uh, i wouldn't say young she make her look like little and skinny uh but uh so they were trying the marketing basically almost made it look like fat shaming and that was the marketing department's fault because the story itself is absolutely not that it's almost like a twist on I, I guess you want to say it's almost like a twist on uh, the, the the Snow White tale, but also on a few other fairy tales where it's almost like uh, uh, the premise is, is that there are these seven princes that are cursed by this fairy uh, because they see that this fairy is actually very ugly. At least they deem her ugly. And then she's like, you guys need to learn how to appreciate true beauty. And only in, uh, so I'm going to curse you. And the only way to break this curse is by somebody to love you and by like, a, like an actual, you know, true love's kiss or whatever, like for real love and curses them to look like these little green dwarf creatures. And so, man, I love <laughs> and beauty so, and the beast. But the thing, <laughs> yeah, but the, yeah. And, but the thing is, is that. Uh, only when somebody's looking at them, they will look like dwarves. When somebody's looking away, they will look like princes again. So it's like an on and off. Like So they play up, they're supposed to play up off of that constantly in the movie. So it's actually, it's I've seen clips of it. It's, it's, it's actually pretty good um, <laughs> how they do it. And, uh, and then meanwhile, uh, Snow White is the, you know, it is, she is a princess, daughter of a king. And uh, the, uh, the queen, uh, is trying to, I guess, basically usurp the throne using uh, these magical red shoes that she's crafting from this tree. Uh, uh, Snow White accidentally grabs a hold of these shoes, uh, and you know the magic's put on her, and she can't remove the shoes. And uh, yeah, it's, so it's this whole thing where she ends up uh, fleeing the kingdom because the queen mistakes her for like a thief, not recognizing it's Snow White, 
and um and she ends up you know having to team up with the the dwarves and they're both trying to break their curses and all that kind of stuff and both trying to learn how to like you know show one showing the other how to love somebody for who they are uh but yeah it's supposed to be it, it i have seen some reviews of it too and, and a lot of people really do like it so um don't listen to the marketing department blow up story because it's not that <laughs> was there already a dub release version before this and this is just like the official release this is well yes there was an english dub but it was not released here it okay. was uh cool. yeah it was so it's officially getting like a u.s i guess theatrical release here but over overseas it did get released okay because i know people had watched it before I'm like did they just like subtitle it but no nah, that makes more sense yeah no, no, there was definitely already an English voice cast for it and stuff. It's just in terms of U.S. Dis distribution, it hasn't happened yet until now. Okay, that's neat. Yep. Um, okay, so my last story before you actually get into, like, stuff that you came for, for the most part, is, um, <laughs> right, like, I always have this feeling that people are like, oh, I don't want to hear these bitches talk about, like, shit they like. I'm just going to fast forward to, like, how I get a job. <laughs> so anyway, um... So my story is in this, like, little splurge of, like, looking at Hot Topic and seeing how they're trying to survive. Um, one of the things I found is um, the thing, I, I bought it. I was so excited, even though it's it's the worst, like, I say the worst character, but he's not the worst <laughs> character. He's just probably the, like, the least likable character, I guess. Um, <laughs> anyway, so I saw a an official Treasure Planet shirt with ben on it um and it it's 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 a, it's, a, it's like a pop art thing like tell me when i'm rambling and i'm so proud because like they could have took like a pre-made vector from like 20 years ago and just popped it on a shirt but they actually took the time someone opened photoshop and made it like more pop arty the only <laughs> thing i'm kind of sad about is they they had like usually all this stuff is just like oh cinderella or oh ariel or oh it's like mermaid hair or whatever like you know, you, they don't have to like put the fucking logo on the of the of the movie on the shirt for you to understand like the context of the the thing. But for this one, they did mm -hmm. like in the top in the bottom corner. There's like the Treasure Planet logo, just in case you forgot. <laughs> you know, th thanks Disney, thanks for reminding me. In case, in case Ooh, Treasure Planet's want... not a beloved one, we might want to put the name on. It. <laughs> <laughs> we might have to remind people a little bit, but um... well, it's, it's more. Pe I think it's more because pe maybe people wanted to forget the Martin Short robot. <laughs> There's worse no movies. Offense to Martin no offense to Martin Short. It's just his character was not exactly anyone's favorite. <laughs> you know, they were worse movies. But anyway, um, you know, like, you know, he's fine compared to like. There's much worse Scrappies than Martin Short Robot. But anyway. Um, like Scrappy. Yeah, like as a starter. <laughs> um, scrappy is a term, is a, is a trope, which is basically an, a character that's not liked by, like, anyone. So, you know, that's that's that. <laughs> like Scrappy-Doo from Scooby-Doo. Anyway, I, ha I, I always forget I have to anyway. define stuff because I talk fandom and people are like, <laughs> what the fuck? So anyway, um, so this is the, f like, I think this is the first, I'm pretty sure, I'm like 90% sure, like, this is the first, like, officially licensed Treasure Planet thing in, like, 20 years. The only thing that I've seen that is um, Treasure Planet that is, like, not fan art put on, like, a Tee Public shirt or something like that is a, um, is one, like, a very small chip from, like, the Disney Infinity Games where they had different, I guess, power-ups or something. Like, you get, you get the characters mm. and you put them on the stand and then they can play in the thing. 
like um like a box so it's basically like a build your own world or whatever but with disney characters and marvel characters and star wars characters i guess it, it discontinued but i thought it was a really cool idea and if i was a kid like i would have been on that shit but anyway so like they had like a little solar surfer disc as well but they also had things like a Mabel power up from Gravity Falls and stuff like that, but that was the only thing I could find like relatively recently. So like, if you have money, like I don't like Ben. I mean, he's fine. Like I've said, we just had this conversation. He's he's relatively fine and he's fun to like, um, you know, some people. And you know, I still bought the shirt because I'm just like, yo, like this is you know, there's there's the there's there's the there's the robot guy from the thing that I like. So, you know, if you have money <laughs> and like even some of the Renaissance, the Disney Renaissance movies that are not as popular, quote unquote, like Hunchback and like Tarzan and like, you know, some of the Disney afternoon stuff, even like I'm seeing Gargoyle stuff reemerge and, you know, like, what? yeah, there's 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 Gargoyles Funkos, yo. Gargoyles, and I think, and I think Box Lunch has a bunch of gargoyle stuff too now. Not Box Lunch is especially good at giving you like the even more exclusive stuff. What is? Which what is? Are they? What are they? Box kind of Lunch. It, Box Lunch is it? Oh, Box Lunch is a sister sister to uh, Hot Topic, pretty much. Oh, it's okay. a similar kind of merch, but it's actually even more exclusive because they have uh, a wider variety of things. And plus, every purchase goes to help. Uh, pay for for meals so uh, for those who can't afford meals oh yeah so you should clarify like that it pays for food oh, but cool. like for rich people it's fine yeah yeah <laughs> yeah no it's like every it's like proceeds from purchases go to helping feed uh hungry hungry kids and hungry families so yeah uh oh no this site's wonderful <laughs> yeah there's <laughs> oh no there's, right there's, they got lots of and if anything i feel like it's more uh it's more i i don't maybe millennial centric because it's focused on the collectability aspect and like the you get more lounge fly backpacks you get more uh you know exclusive merchandise like i've seen a lot more of like emperor's new groove stuff gargoyles disney after they stuff. oh like, yeah kind of, the, the harder to find stuff goes through box lunch i just i just saw on my feed like this is not really news this is kind of like relevant to what we were talking about but um we talked about the the disney designer brand with um esmeralda that i got for, that like a 200 dollars esmeralda don't judge me internet but they just released <laughs> like i guess like no one knew about it but they just released a subset of the masquerade brand with vi villains and they have like yes. the usual they have like usual ursula and maleficent and stuff but they also have the villain from enchanted that i don't remember her name it's not important actually no that actually no i had to double check that that's actually still just the evil queen from snow white oh. she just has a revamp i know i thought it was queen queen narissa too i had to double check and i'm like ah dang it no her color scheme's not the same and they had to clarify in on the catalog that it's actually the it's actually the what was her name green uh what was was it what was the? I'm gonna have to remember who the queen was in, in Snow White, but everyone knows her as Evil Queen, right? But anyway, some bitch. It's uh, fine. But, yeah. <laughs> but the but the special highlights to me are that they included Hades and Isma from the Emperor's New Groove. So Hades is Hercules, and Isma is Emperor's New Groove. Two villains that I mean, one gets definitely more stuff than the other. So, but the fact that these two were in, included in the lineup at all for Masquerade is amazing yeah and those are two of lauren's like favorite things ever so she's she's happy if, <laughs> if you guys want to buy lauren some dollars you can send them like 
you know, I'm sure she'll <laughs> accept your PayPal money. But anyway, like, you know, I don't think from correct me if I'm wrong, Lauren, but I don't think there's ever been like a doll of either Hades or Yzma, right? Yeah, well, to that level, no, I don't think so. I mean, I think there may have been, I don't know, plushies of them before yeah. when their movies were released. But other than that, they have not gotten like the special collectible doll treatment like this, especially. Um, so it's really cool, uh, really cool to see that they're finally getting that treatment one 20 something years after the fact and the other one yeah 20 years exactly after the fact yay millennials were winning so <laughs> <laughs> um so yeah i think that's all the news um and then you got like a side you, you even got like five news stories i'm glad jj is patient but like as far as the gargoyle stuff jj i've seen like I've mentioned I play Sorcerer's Arena, um, which is a Disney like fighting game, and they have Demona on there as well as like robot nice. Goliath like enemies that you fight. And then like yeah. they have emojis with they just released like an emoji pack with all the are the gargoyles characters like um like even the dog Bronx I Bronx is the dog right the dog gargoyle yeah. thing okay. And then yeah. I was like looking over your IMDb and I'm like, oh, never mind, you're biased. Like, get out of here. <laughs> <laughs> so what I'm referring to is that JJ worked on Young Justice, which is um, Greg Westman's show, who created Gargoyles. So like, you know, I I, I paid attention. I googled things. Okay, so <laughs> my first my first day of work on Young Justice, when I met Greg, I'm like, oh my god, this is the guy who created Gargoyles. <laughs> It's fine. Yeah, from what I've from what I've heard, he's like a pretty cool dude, and I really hope like there's gargoyle something that gets out as it's starting to kind of get nostalgicized again. So yeah. we'll see. Like yeah. everybody says, oh no, we totally have like a five year plan for like this show, but like most of the people are lying. <laughs> but Greg Wiseman <laughs> legitimately has like. I would. I legitimately believe that guy has like like twenty years of mythology mapped out in detail, like like wow. to the week, because uh, like he is that meticulous. Yeah. Like on Young Justice, like between you know, there's a time jump between seasons one and two, and when we launched season two, they, like each storyboard team had like a three hour meeting where Greg like sat them in a conference room. And told them what happened in the five-year gap. Oh my like, god! Wow. In in detail, what happened in that five-year gap? <laughs> it's like I believe that if anybody actually has, you know, like the next ten seasons of a show ready to go, if if somebody called, I, I bet it's him. <laughs> oh my god, he sounds like the best guy. Yeah, he he even wrote a Kim Possible episode one time, which no one cares about, but I know that because of course I do. Um. <laughs> But yeah, um, I'm I'm trying to see if I can get Greg for something eventually. But you know, I'm like, hey, watch well, talk about gargoyles, and he's like, sounds cool. But I have no, I don't know any of these people, so I'm just like making plans in my head. <laughs> it's fine. Okay, you're making a, a guest wish list. <laughs> yeah, like the whole point of like I don't know how much Lauren told you, but like the whole point of the channel, um, and for those listening, is kind of like re reinviting people to like talk about why they're passionate about animation or like specific shows that they worked on because like mm -hmm. sometimes like even with the internet people don't know that 
like the thing they made 20 years ago like people still care about it and i'm just like do mm-hmm. people still care about that thing and i'm like yes they do they want to hear you talk about it <laughs> and then they're just like the people love me they really do and i'm like of course yeah of course they did like come on so i think it's kind of like you brought them so much happiness when they were young of course yeah they love you. yeah like don't be it's you know everyone loves you stop doubting yourself it's fine so kind of like (laughs) that's the idea so um i guess i'll let lauren lead the questions because she knows you and then i'll just interject rudely um as i hear things that we want to talk about (laughs) but lauren you wrote the outline so i guess why don't you go ahead and um we can talk animation my favorite thing so all right, so I guess the like, first question: Why? No, <laughs> why do you exist? <laughs> but really, wh- well, it wh- started when I was a young little baby, and my dad realized he wasn't gonna have a USC quarterback on his hands. <laughs> uh, it's like, yeah, I because I mean, animation. It's it's funny how much bigger a deal it's become to be to be in the animation industry now. Versus, like, I mean, even when I was born, like, it was the, you know, it was during the renaissance of Disney and all that stuff. And the primetime animation and, uh, you know, adult animation, all that. But before that, there wasn't, like, a huge demand. Uh, it wasn't a huge influx. So it was like, uh, so what, for every generation, there seems to be a, a different inspiration as to why they want to go into animation. What inspired you to pursue animation and, and story and what got you into storyboarding? What inspired me to get into animation? It's, I, I, I have like a really weird route to where I ended up. Cause I, when I started college, I wanted to be a 3d animator which is a little different than a storyboard director. Um, but I, I I mean, I always knew that I wanted, I always liked art and drawing. And I would, before I could really like draw for myself, I would make every adult that I knew draw on whatever kind of paper they had, whether it was like, you know, a paper grocery bag or whatever it was. But so I, I always loved art. Like I, I, my dad literally tells the story. He's like, I realized very early on that I didn't have a quarterback on my hands. Oh, so, I thought you were kidding. Uh, That's adorable. <laughs> I am not kidding. And I was very fortunate that my dad, uh, or, you know, my parents were uh, very supportive of, you know, me pursuing my passions. But like mm. the, like I said, it, it's a weird route in. I, the first time I became like, aware that animation was like something I could do when I grew up was in it was like probably 99 and I was watching like a tv special about the making of Star Wars episode one and they were Mm. talking about just all the computer animated characters and like for whatever reason I must have been like both old enough and however they explained it like it clicked to me like wait this is something adults can do for a living uh, and then I, all and like from that point on, uh, you know, all through high school, you know, I'd go to like summer camp and start to learn like the fundamentals of like 3D animation. And then when I went to college at Loyola Marymount, mm-hmm. uh, I really, you know, I, my focus when I started there was going to be 3D animation. Um, 
But then while I was at, at LMU, um, I realized that like, I actually enjoyed storyboarding also, and I was not bad at it. My drawings weren't good, but kind of my sense of storytelling, I think was, uh, always, you know, pretty strong. Um, <laughs> but then like what really, what really caused me to, to abandon my dreams of being a 3d animator where I, uh, I got a summer job, uh, through one of the professors. Uh, he's like, Hey JJ, uh, do you want a job? He there's literally like, it was like June, you know, like we were a month into summer and I get a call from him and, and he's like, Hey, do you want a job? I'm like, what? Yeah. <laughs> and so I ended up spending the summer between junior and senior year uh, working on Food Fight. <laughs> oh, wow. Because <laughs> the studio was based out in Santa Monica, right? Yeah, it was in, uh, it was in like uh, Hollywood. Okay. And so it was like, yeah, it was on like, like Santa Monica Boulevard in La Brea. Okay, and yeah, no, exactly where that is. Yeah, it was, so it was like, it was like a block north of La Brea and like two blocks south of, it isn't like, like a warehouse. It was, no, it was <laughs> like, I think part of it was a warehouse and then it had like an attached like secondary, like second floor office. And so it was just like one room with a bunch of people who were, uh, officially we were uh, motion capture cleanup artists. Mm -hmm. But the uh, the motion capture had been done so ineptly that our animation director would say, JJ, here's your scene. Uh, just delete all the scene, all the keyframes <laughs> and redo it so it looks good. <laughs> so I, I spent a year or uh, not a year. I spent a summer working on that. And uh, man, I really I really came away from that going 3D animation, like being a 3D animator. This is not for me. Uh, <laughs> Can you, in your own this words, just in food fight? This just in food fight killed 3D animation for me. Yeah. <laughs> oh my god. Uh, but but I ended up um, for you know my senior year of college, or I had already taken Jay Oliva's storyboarding class uh, my junior oh, year. You survived. <laughs> I don't know how I survived that semester. Oh. <laughs> I had like 24 units, I think. Before we move on, yeah. before you we move on, can you describe in your own words like what Food Fight is for people who aren't aware of it? Uh, food Fight is what happens when somebody sees Shrek and goes, hey, I want to make a, a movie that rides that line also. But they don't but it, it's like it's too juvenile to appeal to adults but it's too like crass to be marketable to kids um and so you get food fight and basically like it's like one of the selling points of that movie was like the math like i think they had to pull back some of it but like at one point it was almost everything every character in the movie except like the actual protagonist characters were like product placement characters and mm -hmm. so i think one of the I, th I think oh damn what was that character um which one uh oh it was a, it was a there was a bird uh and i can't remember what brand it was oh i think you're thinking are you thinking of the the stork yeah like for vlasic yeah vlasic stork there we go yeah yeah like it would be like random it's, it's like the pickles, licensed right? characters like that and um and so basically the the story of food fight is uh, a generic brand is taking over, like is taking over 
the the aisles at a grocery store so all the name brands have to fight fight the brand x <laughs> it's madness um it's such a bad movie um but one of my like uh, one of my fondest memories of working on it was like at the end of the first week the uh the director or not the director of the film the anime like the supervisor at the company i was at just like mm-hmm. he bought a bunch of beers at lunch and brought him back to the studio and he goes all right everyone gather around we have the uh we have all of the raw like they'd done like a play blast of the movie from the motion capture like the mm-hmm. raw motion capture so we like we watched like the movie as a play blast uh and everyone was just like in ho- like just staring in horror like oh my god what are you <laughs> doing <laughs> but like it, it's it's funny but like it's funny because you know you you hear a movie like food fight and it seems like you know where careers go to die but you know <laughs> but you know like one of the one of, like one of the guys there was he was like one of the pioneers of uh motion capture and he would dude he would roll in at like three in the afternoon and just you know kind of like work his own hours but he was so good at what he did that he just you know he just knocked everything out um, but he was like literally taking calls. This is 2007. So he was literally taking calls from James wow. Cameron. Not like Ugh. James Cameron's assistant, from James Cameron, uh, wow. trying to get him to work on Avatar. Um, and so, so through that connection, a couple of the guys that worked on Food Fight ended up working on Avatar, uh, including wow. like, a, another guy from LMU that I, that I know. And then he, through that, he ended up working at Weta. And so he worked wow. on like all the Hobbit movies and stuff like that, all because he worked on Food Fight. <laughs> <laughs> so it so Food Fight didn't kill absolutely everything in its path. <laughs> no, <laughs> I mean, my favorite thing about it is like when like when we were working on it, the it had like really like top tier talent, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, but by the time it came out, almost everybody's like sun had set. And so it was, everybody was has been by the time it finally came out, like seven oh. years later or something like that. <laughs> like Charlie Sheen was like, was like an A-list celebrity when it was recorded, but he had had his meltdown by the time it came out. And then, you know, like uh, Hillary Duff was, you know, like at the peak of her fame at that point. But then mm-hmm. seven years later, it's like, oh yeah, her. <laughs> And then Eva Longoria was at the time yeah. like super popular in Desperate Housewives, and then mm-hmm. by the time the movie came out, like Desperate Housewives was long gone. <laughs> yeah, one of one of the guys I worked with, uh, the first Michael Bay Transformers came out like while we were working on it, and he snuck into a premiere party for it and saw Wayne Brady there, and Wayne Brady voiced uh, Daredevil Dan in Food Fight, <laughs> and he goes. Yo, hey Wayne, I dude, I'm working on one of your movies. He goes, Oh yeah, which one? He goes, Food Fight. And just turns away, turns away from him. <laughs> oh no. But yeah, that's so I can't even remember how I got talking about Food Fight. Oh yeah. Oh, I asked you food about it. I was like, tell me about become food a CG fight. animator. And you're just like, let, let me hear it, like let me tell you the legacy of Food Fight, young children. Yeah. Well, I mean, it was part of his origin story. And so, in turn, the biggest reveal of all was that LMU got you hooked into food fight. <laughs> yeah, because <the, laughs> one of the professors, like, I think his daughter 
went to school with the daughter of the guy that owned the company who was like doing this motion capture cleanup. And mm-hmm. so, you know, he's like, Hey, uh, do you, you got any like students I can hire cheap to work for the summer? <laughs> <laughs> and he's like, Oh yes. That's <laughs> amazing. <laughs> Not the worst job I got from a professor either. <laughs> Not even close. Oh, God. Um, oh, but anyway, so to skip ahead a little bit, uh, after Food Fight, I'm like, ah, uh, screw being a CG animator. This isn't for me. Uh, and so I really started channel. I, I had taken J.O. Leva's storyboarding class in my junior year. And I'm like, you know, like, I really like storyboarding. I love mm-hmm. cartoons. And so I think I'm going to pursue this. Uh, so I worked, you know, I, I worked hard on my senior year trying to uh, trying to start going down that path. And then uh, I graduated in 2008 and uh, my drawings weren't very good. And I like I literally went to Comic-Con, I think that year or the year after and got a portfolio review and, and the guy's looking at it and goes, have you ever taken a figure drawing class? And uh, you know, I just, I'd taken four years. I have, I had a degree in animation. <laughs> So uh, that was humbling, but yeah, like after after that, uh, I was pretty laser focused on becoming a storyboard artist. And so I started taking a lot of classes at Concept Design Academy, just drawing every day, uh, hanging out with other artists so that I would actually draw more. And uh, eventually like I got my foot in the door um, as a PA actually. And through there, I just kept networking kept practicing uh had my co-workers kind of look at my samples and give me feedback and eventually and so that was young justice i was a pa on young justice mm. and when that was winding down i'd actually reached out to a friend on uh, transformers prime to see if they needed storyboard artists because a few of my friends were rolling off of young justice at that time and i was like oh uh, maybe they maybe they're looking for a board artist there and she's like, no, but we're looking for a revisionist. I'm like, oh, oh, wait, no, I can do that. And so I uh, ended up applying and getting that job. And wow. how did you get your foot in the door as a PA? Do you remember? Yeah, I do. I, I got my foot in the door as a PA um, through, actually, it was through somebody I had interned with. Um, mm. he, he must have been a co- uh, coordinator. Uh, where I was interning. Um, but I kept in touch with him and, you know, he emailed me one, uh, he, he emailed me one, it was like fall of 2010, said, hey, it's not an art job, but uh, we need a, we need a PA at Warner Brothers. And so I interviewed for that job and I was super excited. And then I went to get drinks with uh, one, of, one of my best friends from college, uh, Matt Mahoney. And he's like, dude, I entered, dude, like uh, Corey called me, said they had a job at Warner Brothers and I interviewed for it. I'm like, wait, was it for this? As I realized that I was like vying for the same job as <laughs> my best friends. And he, he ended up getting that job. So uh, he started like in, it was like September of 2010. And then, but then like three months later, the same guy messages me and goes, hey, we got another job. Are you interested? And so that's how I, I started on Young Justice. Uh, I I stepped into the interview and they're like, ah, well, Jay Oliva was a director on the show. And he goes, 
Well, Jay says you're an all right guy and Corey vouches for you. So, uh, you know, uh, yeah, let, let's do it. <laughs> that sounds like a pity, like hire. It's like, well, I guess, I guess people like you, you know, like, come on on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so I, yeah, I, as a, on young justice for probably, I think they were probably two thirds of the way through season one. I think they were boarding uh, episodes 18 and 19 and 20. And mm. then, cause they had just finished, they had, I think they had just, they had finished boards on the uh, six, on at least 16, which is the, uh, uh, the imaginary invasion one, the one where it's all like, uh, it's like a simulation. They had already mm -hmm. done that one. But I think they were working on the uh, the harm episode and on the uh, the uh, Kid Flash uh, episode. The uh, was it Cold Hearted or something? It's episode twenty. But uh, yeah, and so then I was on that all the way through season two. Wow, <laughs> that is a, it's just like amazing to see how things like pick up once you get in there. It's just like and then. Just another gig comes in and another gig comes in and it's just like and then you're just like okay I it's know. such a small industry everybody yeah. knows everybody <laughs> there's a lot of people in it and yet it's very tight oh it's kind of it's kind of unreal like everybody knows each other through like two degrees of separation probably <laughs> let me ask you this because this is something i'm like oh god when i think about industry stuff are you ever afraid that like something you do that is like can be misinterpreted and then you like worry about it up like worry about it like all night being like oh god i meant to do that thing but i hope that doesn't cross about that thing because then my career will be over so i do that a lot <laughs> i i i try very hard to be tactful mm -hmm. at work so that that doesn't happen uh because <laughs> uh that would be a that would be a very big yeah. fear <laughs> not being understood uh saying something that was misinterpreted misunderstood or misconstrued and so yeah i i try pretty hard especially especially in the workplace to be exceedingly professional you know with my buddies i you know i'm more comfortable and then they then they see the guy who likes fart <laughs> jokes and college humor but uh <laughs> i i try to keep that I try to keep that separate, but I mean, when my, when I'm actually working with buddies, that line gets, yeah, that comes out a little bit at work, but yeah, I mean, I <laughs> one of my, one of my buddies from college is he works at Warner brothers and was working with my director from transformers. And he's like telling stories about me from college. And my director was like, JJ, <laughs> really him? <laughs> And so when I heard that, I'm like, oh, thank God. I fooled him. <laughs> I've been wearing a mask this whole time. Yeah. <laughs> Helps me write the turtles. Yeah. <laughs> okay, there's my bad joke. Yeah, I was gonna say how yeah, I was gonna say, how did working on those previous projects help you prepare you for your roles with uh Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles? You know, I think I think what kind of, I mean, one good thing is I, I think by the time I started on Turtles, I had been working professionally for like, it was like two and a half years probably. And so mm -hmm. I, I had gotten, uh, 
I kind of figured out how, like, I don't, I don't want to say it. I, I'd kind of figured out, like, um, just, flow. like, how, how to, like, function as a professional, if yeah. that makes sense. Um, you know, how to, like, for example, like, when I'm talking with a director whose work I recognize, how not to become, like, a stumbling <laughs> mess and go, oh, Mr. Um, I love you. I just love you so much. <laughs> yeah, it's like, I, after, like, two and a half years, I kind of learned, um, I kind of, like, developed those skills. Um or I developed them enough that I could function mm -hmm. on Turtles, which was helpful because I started the show. Uh, they were working on uh, halfway through season two of 2012 Turtles. And so I, but like, I was a massive fan of the show. Uh, like when I, like when on my first day, I'm like, so like, where are the finished episodes? <laughs> and uh, And I found out that like, they they were basically finishing episodes and then airing them. So like they didn't have any finished episodes that I hadn't seen yet. It's like wow. the one it's like, like the one perk, you know? Yeah. And and so what I did, so the, the coordinator was like, oh, like here's all the animatics. Uh you can catch up with them. And so like she walks by like later that day and she's like, Oh my god, you're already in season two? I'm like, well, I had already seen the first 24 episodes of season one. <laughs> uh, but yeah, like, so I don't, you know, just kind of already having my, uh, kind of knowing how to function professionally allowed me not to like embarrass myself when I actually started working on, you know, my dream property. And, you know, it was an iteration of turtles that I was already just head over heels mm -hmm. in love with. Uh, and, you know, and then I rode that show out from, yeah, I started, the first episode I worked on was the mid-season finale of mm. uh, season two, the uh, part one of the Manhattan Project, or I think they ended up calling it Wormquake, um, but it was the Manhattan Project when I was working on it. Uh, so I kind of did some like shipping notes on that, and then I worked all the way until the they until the very end of season five. Oh wow! I didn't realize wow. it went on for so long. Yeah, yeah it, it it it's like it, especially when for, for probably for anybody who binges the show in one go or whatever it's like it goes by so quickly but it was a lot that they a lot of story that and action that they had packed into the series in in a handful of years it was just amazing mm -hmm. yeah it ended up being what like it's like 120 episodes or something like that wow yeah that yeah. sounds about it, right and became so beloved and and i it's so nice to see anytime there is an incarnation of the turtles that there is always a that no matter what there's a mm -hmm. base for it there is yeah. always a fan following for it because as long as there are people who love turtles there's going to be people who love the, the show in any of its incarnations whether it be a new yeah. generation or the or ones driven by the nostalgia of a previous generation and yeah. so it's it's i love it it's been going on for so long and it'll just keep going on it's great <laughs> yeah like yeah, I, just... I you know i'm on and i'm in like a number of turtles fan groups uh you know i've been on the technodrome forum for like a decade oh so you're point. like hardcore hardcore oh oh yeah there's photos of me at the uh out of their shell tour i was oh, like, nice i i i was that generation of kids that they decided to market an adult comic to 
Like they yeah. saw Ninja Turtles, the Mirage, you know, independent comic and said, Hey, there's all these kids that would love to buy toys of this. And I was that generation of kids. I was, I was born in 84, uh, 86. So mm-hmm. I was, you know, I was like four or five years old when like Turtle Mania was mm-hmm. hitting its peak. So it's like, Oh yeah, dude. My, it's like in your blood. I have like ooze yeah. for blood. Yeah. So my follow-up question. You got, su- you got sewer slime so in your blood. my follow-up question, yeah. do you actually it's... own a turtle? Uh, yeah. A pet turtle? No. I have okay. three cats though. She, yeah, he has cats. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and they're I, all very I, cute cats. <laughs> I, I spam my poor Facebook with, uh, with cat photos. <laughs> It's like, I don't always go onto Facebook, but when I do, every time he has a new picture up and I'm like, oh, there's my fix. (laughs) Uh, Something good in the world. (laughs) Oh, we need that. I do have lots of turtle toys, though. Oh, I wouldn't doubt it. Yeah, that just sounds like me. Like, I think I kind of dodged a bullet because I was trying really hard to, like, be around the live action Kim Possible, like, thing. And then... I was stupid, and I had a contact that like was like, "Hey, I got you some stuff from the premiere," and I'm like, "Oh, I should have just asked you about that, duh." So, um, but yeah, I think yeah, that didn't turn out that great. So I think I dodged a bullet, but I can I can like empathize with just like, "Oh man, I'm exactly where I wanted to be when I was five. Yeah, living the dream." <laughs> well, like the cool thing about turtles is like every, you know, like like I said, I'm part of all these like fan groups, and I see people like there's people of all ages who entered the fandom and the franchise through like different entry points and even like entry points that aren't as Mm -hmm. beloved i think the only one i don't really see a lot of people who are like my the thing i fell and made me fall in love with turtles was next mutation i don't see that Mm. one very often but like i see a bunch of people who are like yeah those movies that michael bay produced that's what made me like fall in love with turtles and that was my entry point. And now there's like a whole generation of people who are like, uh, I didn't care about Turtles until Rise came out. And now I love it more than uh, more than my family. <laughs> you know, uh, so it's like there's all these. It's cool because it is such a like long running franchise with so many different mm-hmm. versions that and most of the versions are pretty good. Uh, and so, it, yeah, there's people with all sorts of different entry point entry that's, points that's fair i guess my yeah. follow-up question is it like intimidating when you when you're taking on a new iteration and you're just like oh god we're gonna change stuff i hope they don't hate me you know <laughs> i know that's not your decision directly but oh, you know yeah. i was just curious like <laughs> what that environment is like well i mean definitely like starting on rise you know i i, I love turtles and i loved it forever and uh, you know, looking at some of the decisions, it's like, wow, that's very different. But you know, you kind of you kind of see what they wanted to, you know, like some of those the changes they made. You see why they did it and what they mm-hmm. planned to do, and that got me mm-hmm. excited about it. You know, like for example, like the Splinter story. Um, you know, you look at his starting point compared to like what Splinter is, you know, traditionally is as a character. And it's a very different starting point. But mm-hmm. what's great about it is that it it starts him at a low uh it starts him at a place where he has runway to grow. And you as the season, as the show you know unfolds, 
it's actually, I love the backstory for Splinter and Rise. Uh, it's really different and it's really in, I found it really engaging and exciting. And there's a lot of like kind of depth mm -hmm. and layers to it. Uh, and so I found like, you know, so like on the surface, when you watch episode one of Rise and you meet Splinter sitting on the sofa chair, drinking milk <laughs> out of the carton, it's like, wow, that is not the sensei that mm -hmm. I know. But then exactly. as the show unfolds, it you you wouldn't have the same journey with Splinter if he started as the sensei mm -hmm. you knew. And then you told the story about, you know, his time as a prisoner in the Battle Nexus. And mm -hmm. then you told about, you know, the everything he lost when he became the mutant rat. And, you know, it's it would just be a different story if he kind of started at a different, you know, at a mm -hmm. different place. And I think I mean, Splinter's story is one of my favorite parts of uh, of Rise. I mean, I think on, on Twitter, some of the, the fans have been doing like, yeah, they, they'll have like different like themes mm -hmm. every day. And I mean, like last week, it was like, what's your favorite storyline in Rise? And for me, it's it's Splinter um, mm. because it is it is so different, but it is so like honest, I think. Uh, I just I just really resonated with it. And I love him as a character and I'm going to, you know, miss him dearly when I finally move on from Rise. That's that's yeah, and I I I like that, I like that there's when you have somebody like Splinter who has become cemented in, in the turtle story, in other incarnations is he's kind of like you know he is as the sensei he's kind of like the all knowing he's the wise one he's the put one he's put together he's but I like that Rise did that went that different direction in how they first introduce him because then it shows it's you're going to get something entirely different this time, but still going to be true to what was established uh, in the, in his story and in who he is as a character in, in the universe. So it's like, I like that they, they went that different direction mm -hmm. for him. Yeah. And it's like, um, I don't know. I think I, for me, 2012 turtles is like the perfect version of traditional Ninja mm -hmm. turtles. Mm -hmm. Uh, so like i don't even know how you follow that up with another version of traditional mm -hmm. ninja turtles because then you're just going to be making decisions uh like you're going to be making creative decisions that are like different because you know Ciro and brandon did mm -hmm. it perfectly already and so it's like well i guess we got to do it a little differently then whereas you know you i think the best i think you know, going the direction Rise did was a great call because it's like, we just did it. We just did classic turtles perfectly. Let's think about what else this franchise right. could be. And it went and just, it went in such a different direction and really committed to it. Uh, there were no half measures when it came to, you know, like there's times where you see something that's like different, but it's actually kind of the same, but Rise really committed to the new characters, the new storylines, kind of the new concepts and I think to me, that's why I love, I love it. I mean, I love both Rise. I love Rise as much as I love 2012. Um, but like I said, 2012 is the perfect version of classic Turtles. And I think Rise to me is, you know, like the, the perfect alternative. Right. Or the kind of the perfect like alternate like take of like what this franchise could right. be. Right. Like you're almost forced to kind of do something that drastically different because you know what other options are there because the other like there's a version that people want that already exists so you're either just going to remake it or you're going to do something different so 
Yeah, like, I don't know. Like, it, if this was another version of 2012, I, I mean, I worked on 2012 for you know, three and a half years. And, you know, it's like, oh, wow, I, I did. It, I, I don't want to run into a situation where it's like, oh, wow, I kind of did this scene three years ago. Mm -hmm. I guess I got to do it the same but different. Yeah, I, that never happened on Rise. That's for sure. Oh yeah, yeah. I've seen like, <laughs> like all. I know, I know a brief amount of Rise, and I just see the storyboard test, and I'm just like, oh my god, that's like cray. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I noticed that some of the storyboard tests and some shots go viral because of just like how intricate they are, and for someone who doesn't have it's much madness. context, it's like <laughs> it's great. Yeah, like when I started on the show and I saw what they were doing, I was like, "Oh my god, I gotta start like working." <laughs> I don't, I don't know if I can keep up with this. <laughs> it's like it, it it goes from zero to one hundred real fast because of especially when you think of the pace of Rise, it's so yeah. different from other incarnations. It is so lightning fast, and the action is so snappy, and it's just like I mean, it's just and it just it's you know it it just blows you against the wall with how much action they can pack into one fighting sequence let alone you know if you have you know boss battles like with the like in shreddy or not it's like you have those just inc <laughs> incredible just just it blows my mind just know seeing how much work goes in in choreography and everything goes into those kinds of sequences and it, yeah. I, it was nothing i'd ever seen out of the turtles before and it just was but it was like it's an adrenaline rush it's a roller coaster ride and you never want to get off when you watch something like rise mm -hmm. because it's yeah. it is it's like an adrenaline pump <laughs> yeah it's uh it's exciting i mean I, I would literally just like spy on the board artists like oh, what are they drawing now oh my god that looks amazing oh that's crazy oh man now i gotta do my scene crap <laughs> <laughs> oh my god um so like were you around or were you like a fly against the wall as far as like developing the visual style like how much like involvement did you have in that and like I think the show is in development while we were wrapping up 2012 Turtles. So I had very little to do with that. Uh, I came on, my first episode was production number okay. 10. Um, so they had done, it was you know the, the 10th episode they produced. Uh, and I think they were, they had done, they had animatics for I think the first six 11 minute episodes and they so they they boarded things a little out of order so they boarded episodes like three four five six seven eight i think first then they did one and two and then they did nine and ten so when they were doing ten they were also i think they had just pitched uh mystic mayhem the uh, series mm -hmm. premiere and so like my first week everyone was like Oh my God, Jedi! You gotta see this fight scene that this new kid Kevin did. And I look at it like, Yeah, Kevin Molina Ortiz. Holy was... crap! Another just... LMU alum, by the way, for the, for listeners, Kevin was another uh, LMU alum, and he was bonkers talented. Even when I remember back at school, were and... you guys there at the same time? Yeah, he was. I believe he was the year behind me. And okay. he was he was absolutely incredible. And then the more stuff he worked on by himself and like the Animax he would just post just for fun that he would do. I'm like, 
golly, this kid. <laughs> and, and so then I, when I saw him paired up on Rise, I'm like, oh, there's no, there is no more perfect show for him than this. And to see yeah. his animatics get shared uh, through Nickelodeon's page and stuff like that, showing like, you know, the side by sides of, you know, some storyboard to final so that they show how much he does. And then, and then uh, he also boarded the, uh, didn't he do the animatic for, uh, uh, for the uh, opening sequence? Yeah, just to give you, yeah, just to give you a taste of his stuff. He's he's really really good with the fast paced stuff, guys. So go check him out. He's good with literally every part of storytelling. You know, Mm -hmm. like there are not many board artists who can juggle, uh, who can juggle action, who can juggle comedy, who can juggle character who can juggle emotion, uh, who can juggle all of those things seamlessly. Uh, you know, some, there are a lot of people who are good at some of them and, you know, like fine at the other parts, but like he is so good at all of it. And um, yeah, like, like you study, like, uh, honestly, like his boards are like, like so next level that like I actually when I'd have freelancers, I usually wouldn't give them Kevin's boards because I, this is totally me projecting from when I was on 2012 and studying Sheldon, Sheldon's boards. I would look at the, uh, I would look at the, the, uh, the flashy stuff. And my, so my eye would be drawn to that and I go, Oh, I got to do that. And, but I wasn't actually looking at the underlying thought behind every decision that led into and out of that flashy moment. And I, I feel like Kevin's work, you know, all the stuff that gets shared is, you know, his Sakuga moments. But like when you look at his episodes, he has such a mastery of storytelling, of character, of comedy, of action that like, I feel like people don't truly un- like truly appreciate like how f- fucking brilliant that kid is. <laughs> yeah. Just like, and anytime I just saw him get brought up, it was like for the show. I'm just like, I knew it. I knew it. He's just going to slay it. And then the moment I just see the clip happen, I'm like, yep, yep. He slayed it. He's like, I'm on the floor now. Just, yep. just, he's, he's really good. So, yeah. But like, every, dude, that whole crew was so good. Especially like, yeah, from every aspect, you could tell it was just everything was poured into it. Uh, Flying Bark uh, Studio for their animation, too, on on top of that. They were so good. Oh, we got so lucky. A lot (laughs) of the board artists or a lot of the storyboard team boards, revisions were uh, this is their first job. And I would tell them like we Thursdays, that was animation day. That's when Flying Bark would send their like uh, takes for the week in. And we'd always just snoop on the server and watch it and just gush about how good it looked. And I'd always tell the team, like, don't get used to it. Your next job probably won't look this good. We're spoiled on rise. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. How yeah, was it uh, working with it? How was it working with them? It was really nice knowing that you could trust the studio to do a good job uh, with your storyboard. Um, not that hasn't always been the case. Um, you know, there, there have been times where, you know, you pour your heart into a scene, you know, this is on other shows, you pour your heart into a scene and it comes back and it just looks like 
somebody picked up a turd and smeared it on a piece of paper. Um, but like flying bark, even your most like embarrassing and shameful drawings, like they they make it all look so good, and they put so much love into it that it's just mm, fantastic. I love love them. Huge fan. Huge okay, fan. Okay, and um, can you? like define kind of the breakup between like studio and storyboarding for people who don't know the the pipeline like yeah so basically <laughs> like an animation most animation uh especially like most western animation is going to be uh, like pre-production is in the united states and so that that'll be your writing your storyboarding uh your animatic editing and then your uh did i say voice recording that too if i didn't all of you that stuff is part of your uh, kind of the pre-production process, and all of that gets shipped to an animation studio. Mo you know, nine, ten out of twenty times, it's going to be in another country. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, some you know some a lot of animation is done in Korea, uh, Canada. Uh, Flying Bark is in Australia. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so it gets sent to, uh, uh, you know, gets outsourced. Um, so the animation production is when you actually get uh, people taking the storyboards, translating that to like uh, background and character layouts, then actual like keyframe and in between animation, uh, cleanup, color, and I think comp is also typically outs- or handled by your outsourced studio. And comp is mm-hmm. uh, just that extra layer of uh, polish that goes on the picture. You know, sometimes it'll be like a subtle kind of like a, a like some it'll be like filters or you know sometimes like a, like a rim light that's kind of a not necessarily hand drawn, but mm-hmm. um, you know sometimes they'll do like a layer offset to create like a rim light. Mm-hmm. Uh, or you know sometimes uh, if anything like a glow needs processing to make it rather than just being like a white laser sword to actually have that kind of like bloom on it to make it look like it's glowing. Mm-hmm. That's all part of the comp. And so th- those things are part of the animation production. Then that footage gets sent back for post-production and post-production is going to be your actual uh, picture editing. Uh, you know, so editing the final picture together to the actual broadcast you know, time, which for us was I think 1045. Um, and then that's when any ADR that needs to happen is done as, as part of post. That's when mm-hmm. your sound design and your score is done. And then ultimately all compiled and delivered and finally aired. And then all that post-production is, in my experience, to, uh, done back in the United States. Right. Because you have, have to deal with the voice actors of the that sent their lines. So, you know. Yeah. I mean, you can do it remotely, but I imagine it's harder than just like being in a studio and like giving well, those directions. Well, we're finding so. out. <laughs> we're finding out in COVID times. Uh, that is that is valid. <laughs> yeah, the entire, a lot of you know, there's been a lot of talk about how the animation industry is, uh, you know, going full steam ahead in the COVID times. Uh, you know, but there's definitely a couple of of roadblocks. Um, there are certain things that you know, there wasn't really a, uh, there were certain things that were just the way you did it was 
built around being there in person. And part mm-hmm. of that was, you know, like voice records. Cause, you know, it's, you have a bunch of, you know, you just record voices in a, in a recording studio with expensive recording equipment. And typically, you know, directors and producer, well, not director, episode directors, usually producers, mm-hmm. sometimes writers will be there, uh, a voice director, and everyone's there directing the talent. And then suddenly no one can be within six feet of each other, let alone in a room, in a studio or a confined room together. And the entire industry had to figure out, okay, how do we do this part remote? Mm-hmm. But most most. Most studios have figured it out. It a lot of studios have gotten, or a lot of the actors have, um, as far as my as far as I understand, a lot of the, a lot of actors um, took kind of the initiative uh, to get their own setups, and then the ones mm-hmm. who didn't, studios kind of helped get them set up, and uh, so they could do broadcast quality uh, recording at uh, from from home. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's neat. It's it's interesting to study how this is affecting everything, but it you know, really is. Yeah, it's like one it's day at a, a time, I guess. Yeah, yeah, it's it's a trip. Like, it, there's it's a lot of like unexpected. There's been a lot of unexpected challenges. Not, it, in a weird way, the transition was actually a lot more, a lot more seamless than I would have expected. But yeah, there's just like little weird, unexpected challenges that I've, that I've found. Mm-hmm. Um, just kind of like, you know, like, like launching a storyboard remotely is ultimately it's exactly how you would launch a freelancer who's not in Burbank. You know, mm-hmm. it's, you set up a call with them or you just do a detailed email um, breaking down the scene. And you know, it's, that's not too different. But like it's it's all like the little interpersonal like interpersonal things like looking at revisions is like the big one that I think of a lot because you know before like my revisionist would say hey JJ I finished that thing and I just go to their desk and they'd flip through it and I'd say oh fix that one panel but otherwise mm-hmm. just drop it in my folder and you know it's like a five minute process but now it's like you gotta schedule calls and you gotta upload things to and from the server and you gotta keep track of things on your own computer as well as on the server and so there's like it's like file management angle to it that's like just extra important now because you know everybody is remote and so it's it's like the little things that i found have been challenging that and edit sessions like animatic edits um we we started using a, a program called evercast which has been really nice but i know like when we were about to start animatic edits remote, I like called friends at other studios. I'm like, Hey, how are you guys doing this? Is there like a good way to do that? And they're like, uh, no, there's no good way to do this. Save yourself trouble, uh, tie the storyboards yourself. So the timing's exactly how you want it. And you're not trying to noodle, you know, like two frames off of something when you're getting four frames of lag from your, uh, <laughs> from your internet connection and i'm like oh no uh, like i i talked to i called one friend and they're like yeah like this edit session that should have been three hours was seven so yeah so was, you know it's like little things like that which have been uh, <laughs> really affected but 
I mean, you know, we've been doing this for over six months now, and it's pretty, it's a lot, it's pretty smooth, at least in my, on, from my perspective in the industry, or, or I guess from, from my perspective, from all the angles I can see, it's, it's running smooth in my experience now. That's good. Yeah, now that you got the hang of it. Um, yeah. So something I might have I might have missed, but like, let me back up a little bit. So like, as a director, like, so from storyboarder director, what is like the like what is your job um, detail and what is the difference? Because you know, I guess the line is kind of blurry as far as like usually how much um, visual control a storyboarder has versus like what the director wants. So I mm-hmm. guess like which what how do you usually deal with that? The way I kind of, the way I kind of, kind of joke about it is like, if this, if my storyboard artist did a good job, then I have the easiest job in the world. Ah, <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, but yeah, really. Um, how do I? Where do you start? The so my so I guess looking at like looking at an, let's just take one a random episode, and say uh, I'll. Kind of this is this is kind of what my responsibility on an episode is. Uh, usually, when the first, second, the and record draft come in, I'll take a look at them, and I'll f- I'll f- on my show I was able to flag any concerns that I had, as mm-hmm. that we could talk about it uh, while the writers were still working on the episode, and any concern that I voiced was ultimately uh considered and then just decided on by the producers and the writers you know it's Mm -hmm. not i didn't have any like any power to like dictate this doesn't work we're gonna do this instead (laughs) it's like no i I could say hey like i got a concern about this scene you have like three beats that are doing the same thing i think it's going to be redundant can we fold all of these into like one one action uh, it would be, you know, kind of stuff like that. Or, hey, like, uh, this character kind of, like, disappears for three pages. Uh, like, you know, what's happening here? And just just try, trying to, like, flag things that uh, uh, it, it would be mostly concerns like, oh, like, I, I've worked on enough of these episodes that I, like, that's a problem that we've run into before. Let's see if we can head it off at this time. So, you know, I, I would kind of give kind of my initial thoughts on uh, on the drafts of the script. But then once the record draft was in, uh, it was then my responsibility to take it and hand it out to the storyboard artists. And that would be, that's basically the way I handled it was I read the script and I would flag any anything in particular that I wanted to see, like, for example, like if there was something like I might say, oh, for this scene, look at uh, this particular scene in Gremlins. Uh, they did a really good job of this, this, and this. So like try mm-hmm. to capture those elements of this scene uh, mm-hmm. when you're working on this. Uh, and so I, you know, I try to put the storyboard artist in in the right headspace for the scene, and in in particular for anything that I wanted to see out of the episode, in particular. <laughs> then send the board artist off for three weeks or so, let them do their thing. Uh, and then we would do a rough storyboard pitch. And that's when we would take a look at 
what the storyboard artist has done so far. Mm-hmm. And in theory, it would be a rough version of the entire episode. And at that point, I would then go, okay, uh, I like this. I like this. Uh, you like take a look at, I would usually like take, take the scene and kind of do some notes say, all right, um, this particular scene, you have some, uh, like 180, you know, 180 line problems. Like you cross the 180 line here. So let's, let's maybe like restage it like this. So we don't have that problem or like, Hey, like the geography is a little unclear. It's basically me taking all of my, my storyboard skills and making sure that the storyboard is clear, uh, is clear and, Mm -hmm. uh, uh, up to the standard that uh, you know I personally have. Uh, the other part is, oh, the other part to it is um, the producers would also do a, a launch for the episode where they flag anything that they particularly want to see or need to see in the episode. Mm-hmm. And so my other job is kind of being, kind of making sure that the producers' needs are serviced. And so I, uh, that's probably my most important job. Because like, you know, ultimately it's not my episode, uh, you know, it's, it's the producers. And so like, uh, if they want, if they want me to reference, you know, uh, I don't know if they, if they want me to reference Cinderella for this fight scene, I'll go, um, all right, let's, um, <laughs> try to reference so. Cinderella for a fight scene. That's just a random weird thing I pulled out of my butt, but yeah, you know that that's the kind of thing. Like, it ultimately it's my job to make sure that the producers' vision, uh, or the producers see what they want to see out of the episode. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so then also at the rough pitch, the producers give their feedback. They they'll say, "Hey, this wasn't clear. Hey, uh, you didn't really uh, get this character thing right." Or, "Hey." Uh, uh, I really like the scene you did here. Let's make sure to uh, set that up earlier on. And yeah, so it's, again, making sure that my personal vision for the episode gets executed while also making sure that the producer's more important vision gets executed. And then also, you know, I try not to, I try not to, you know, steamroll the board artists. I want them to have ownership over the episode. And so, uh, a lot of times I'll, a lot of times I'll try to uh, look at what they're trying to do, mm-hmm. and try to find out and try to help them make that work best. Mm-hmm. You know, sometimes it, sometimes there will be like oh like I would have done it, I would have done something differently, but like I see what you're doing here, and rather than throwing out what you've done and just redoing it myself, because I don't have time to do that and I I don't want to do that. <laughs> Um, it's like, oh, like if we do this, this, and this, that's going to make what you're going for work. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so that's, so that's a lot of my responsibility on the front end, uh, the front end on the actual st- during while a storyboarding on an episode is going on. Mm-hmm. Then once the storyboard, once the clean storyboards are turned in, I will, uh, that gets sent to the editor and, uh, I am responsible for making sure the animatic is presentable. Mm-hmm. So I'll sit with the editor. I'll make sure that uh, the timing is right. I'll make sure that any kind of temp music is play, uh, you know, kind of servicing the story correctly. Uh, make sure that any kind of temp sound effects aren't um, making sure they're all in the right place. Mm-hmm. And then once the clean storyboards are in and I'm watching it, 
I'll usually do a quick pass of revisions to kind of I kind of kind of catch uh, anything that I kind of call them the 911 notes, like the real emergencies. Like, oh, if they see that, they're gonna be upset. I'm gonna <laughs> fix that so they don't see that and get upset by it. You know, because sometimes they'll say they'll explicitly say. Uh, do not reference gremlins for this scene. And then it's like, uh-oh, that looks like a gremlin scene. And I don't know why I'm picking on gremlins. I, I love that movie. Uh, but, but yeah, no, and, and so it's making sure that first animatic is uh, as good as possible. Mm-hmm. Then once we screen first animatic, it'll be the producers and the network executives. And so that'll be a new round of notes from the producers and the execs. And it'll be my responsibility to work with the revisionist and make sure all of those notes get implemented as well as any personal notes that I have. Mm-hmm. You know, sometimes the, sometimes like an action scene won't get any notes, but I'll say, Oh, actually, I think we can punch this up a little bit, make it a little more exciting and dynamic. Um, or, Oh, like, let's just fine tune this a little bit. And so really like, so for second animatic and shipping animatic, it's just refining the episode, making sure it's the best episode visually that it can be. And then um, uh, also cutting it down to time. Uh, I'd say probably on average, my episodes at first animatic were 12 to 12 and a half minutes long. And they had to ship to Flying Bark at 11 minutes mm-hmm. uh, on the nose. So that was always a gigantic part of the process going, all right. We got to cut 90 seconds out of this episode. Where do we begin? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so that was sometimes there were like, you know, sometimes there were, if you were lucky, there was like, there'd be like a 20 second dialogue exchange that you could just lift out. Yeah. But a lot of times it would be like, okay, let's cut like six frames here. Let's cut 20 frames here. Maybe if like, Let's just rethink how they enter this room so that it takes five seconds instead of ten, uh, and then that's so that's that'll be a big part of it, like making those cuts and then stitching it up so that you don't see the scars all over the episode. <laughs> yeah, it's a lot of like less is more trying to make that work. I I really didn't understand that as a storyboard artist, but like as soon as I started sitting in the edit bay, I'm like, oh. Okay, I I get it now. <laughs> You're because I was I was notorious for overboarding. Like I think mm. my very first storyboard, my my director like hazed me and gave me the third act for my very first storyboard. Uh, <laughs> once I got promoted from revisionist, and like the the script had like it was like five like action scenes in this third act. It was crazy. It was a super dense third act. Um, but I was too green to know how to like pace that correctly. So instead of like prioritizing them, I just did five different act three fight scenes. And the first animatic, it was like, I think my section was like 13 or 14 minutes long in what should have been a 22 minute episode. <laughs> Jeez. Yeah. Uh, and I kind of did a lot of that stuff until I, until I became a director and then like just actually having to sit and cut an episode, you get a really keen sense of, uh, what exactly is necessary to tell the story. Mm-hmm. And yeah, you get a, you get a really keen sense of 
exactly what is necessary. Because when you're a board artist, you get like you get really in your head about like, uh, you know, like watching your like Sergio Leone reference and like oh, but he has forty five seconds on this one shot of the two men staring each other down. I need that. Um, and then when you're editing an episode down to eleven minutes, you're like, no, you don't. You need that uh, three seconds of that. And you're just fine. <laughs> Oh, I know the feel like, you know, you just kind of like shut out from reality and you're just like, no, it has to be this way because this is how I know perfection. And then like, as soon as you get notes from other people, you're like, oh, what am I doing? Yeah. (laughs) And like when you're cutting an episode down to time, it's like, all right. I mean, if you want that 45 second standoff, you got to cut it from somewhere else. Which what are you where are you going to cut it from? Mm -hmm. That opening scene that lays the groundwork for that standoff you want? Nope. Uh, it's like the crazy one was uh, the my last episode on the Rise series was Shreddy or Not. And it was like, it was an insane amount of story that we were cramming into 11 minutes. And like I had been working on this fight scene. And when we pitched it, uh, Ant and Andy were like, this scene is way too long, dude. And I'm like, what? No, but like, dude, it is way too long. <laughs> and so... Like, I tried to cut it down, and it was still, like, preposterously long. And so I ended up just having to, like, scrap what I did and rethink it in a way that would effectively tell the story in the time that I had. Because ultimately, like, it would be just irresponsible for me to turn in, like, like a five-minute fight scene in an 11-minute episode. Because, like, what, what am I, you know, I would have had to sacrifice all of the actual story that was happening at the top of the episode and kind of like there's some like really emotional like decompression at the like there's a really emotional cliffhanger at mm-hmm. the end of the episode and i wanted to like at the end of the day punching is punching mm-hmm. i wanted to make sure i had time to milk the end of the episode to make sure like like uh, uh, they lose a character mm-hmm. and i wanted to make sure we had time to slow down and like like let those moments linger and make the audience just feel the heartache Mm -hmm. and so ultimately i'm like all right well if i want that then i can't have the fight the long extravagant fight scene um so yeah i I was like well obviously the thing that people are going to remember is being you know is the emotional gut punch Mm -hmm. punching is literal punching is punching yeah but it's that it's that emotional stuff that like really lingers with you yeah. Yeah, I think that's so, a good that's a that's a good way to put it. Sorry, I like this episode. It's turning out nice. <laughs> <laughs> it's like getting actually like we're like such released, nerds, like... so we're just like every time we have like, you know, like other people. Well, not like every time we have people that have like all these industry stories. People are like, "Oh, I rambled too long. Was it boring?" And Lauren and I are like, "No, we love it. Like, no, t- it's fun. <laughs> it's fine. It's why it's why we it's why we like to leave a big gap for anybody that wants to share those stories and share the process with us and talking mm-hmm. about those kinds of things. Because I mean, that's it's all in the details. That's that's what makes each experience unique and different, and how it's like everybody could be in like there could be a, a million storyboarders but they each have a different story to tell of how they of like how they got into the industry and 
you know what they do now and and their personal sto stories of like their first their first reviews or their worst reviews and you know it's like <laughs> so it's like so it's it's the yeah it no we love that stuff so trust me you're you're not being a bother by it at all <laughs> oh it's fine. i know i can drone on and on and on <laughs> um but so I, go ahead lauren Oh, I was going to say, but I, I guess what's good is actually is um, it might actually be good to like even uh, have this as a, a good wrap up question. Uh, this is the last on my list that I do have is uh, what advice? Because I do like to ask this of our guests uh, because there are many uh, young listeners on our podcast that listen to the podcast and you know, they're maybe aspiring artists or, or people who want to get into the industry or they're in it and they're very young in it and don't know where else to go with it. Uh, what advice do you have for those who want to work in storyboarding and maybe even build up to like a storyboarding director position? You know, uh, I know that's something that for a lot of people that are in the industry, they build up to it and that sometimes they don't even ask for it. It just kind of, it just happens. <laughs> but, um, but for anybody who is aspiring to be that big, uh, or at least even aspiring to be a storyboard artist, what advice do you have? The, I mean, the easiest thing is just love cartoons. <laughs> Consume uh, all the cartoons. Uh, yeah, no, like really though, it's like, just like if you're really young, you know, if you're like, you know, not going to college yet, like to take that time, just ingest as much like animation and film as you can. Mm -hmm. Cause like what I do, like whenever I start a storyboard, I just, I usually just watch reference for like two days just to like remind myself, like I'll, I'll read a scene and go, Oh, this is kind of like that scene in Ghostbusters. And then I'll mm -hmm. watch that scene in Ghostbusters and dissect why why I thought of it. Yeah, like that That first step is just loving like visual storytelling and just watching as much as you can um, to just build like a visual, it's like a visual library in your head of like how stories are told and the different ways you can tell a story. Because uh, like there's, there's so many different ways to approach the same page of script that kind of your unique collection of things you love is what's going to make you unique as a storyboard artist. Like my storyboards look nothing like Kevin's because I have a completely different set of influences from Kevin mm -hmm. and Kevin's look nothing like Max Collins storyboards because they have a different, different set of influences and they're different from Christine Luz who are different, who's different from Morgan Hillerand who's different from uh, Alicia Chan. And, you know, everyone is, has their own unique influences that makes their voice. And that is going to come from you just, just watching the shit you love. And mm -hmm. so like, dude, if you want to pursue this, just ingest everything. And so you find out that the stuff you love and then that's going to like start to influence you and what makes you unique as a storyteller. Yeah. That's like the easiest, easiest thing. One, and then like after that, just like draw every single day, learn how to draw. Like right now is such a, it's like such an exciting time to just like start becoming an artist because you have like through social media, 
if you just have access to all the best people in the world, mm-hmm. you know, not literally like messaging them and talking to them, but like you have access to their like Instagrams where they're going to post their art and their work mm-hmm. and you can study that and break that down and you can, you can learn how they're thinking and approaching something. Um, and like the best exercise that I got uh, kind of in that, when I was in that stage where I was learning, just building up my drawing skills so I could become a storyboard artist. Um, one of my buddies started on Legend of Korra and gave me some animatics and was like, here, oh no, it, no, it wasn't animatics. He had, what he did every day, he took screen grabs from the animatics and made these like co- like picture collages. It was like 20 like thumbnails on, a, on like an 11 by 17 page. He gave me those and he goes, just trace these every day and like for an hour in the morning, just trace them. That's what I do. And it's the best practice in the world. And, but like, you're not just like copying the picture. Like you're trying to make the same lines that the artist is making. And you're trying to understand why they drew that line. And you're trying to understand their thought process in making every single line. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Then when you go to start doing your drawings for the day, force yourself to make those same decisions. That way you're getting into the head of the masters. Uh, And so I started doing that. This is when I was on Transformers. I started doing uh, Transformers Prime. I would do that like for an hour in the morning. And it it was like the single biggest period of growth in my drawing skills of like my entire life. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, so those are two really easy things that you can do to kind of start, I guess, start developing yourself as an artist. As for actually like breaking into the industry and starting a career, like that's, that's harder. Um, (laughs) You know, it's um, getting your foot in the door is really challenging because it, a lot of it is right place, right time. Mm -hmm. You know, my foot in the door was through my internship. You know, like I mentioned, you know, all those hours ago, Uh, (laughs) you know, I got my foot in the door through somebody I had interned for Mm -hmm. and that got me a PA job. And then because of the people I knew at the PA job that helped me get an in uh, to uh, for transformers. Mm -hmm. And uh, well, actually, technically it was, it's actually somebody had gone to concept design Academy with is who tipped me off that they had a revision slot open. Mm -hmm. And then one of my directors on Young Justice knew people on that show. And so they helped, they kind of, they were kind enough to put in a good word for me. And then, so yeah, just the stars aligned uh, for me to get that first art job. Right. Um, But yeah, it's like, there's no one way to actually get in, I, you know, I, I mean, I guess this sounds silly to say, but like college is one route. Uh, you go to college and uh, make sure you get an internship because the thing I didn't quite understand about my internship was like, it's not just going and hanging out at a studio, but it is actually like the most valuable thing of an internship is your networking. Mm-hmm. Cause that is your first opportunity to spend time with professionals and for uh, professionals to get to personally know you. Mm-hmm. 
so that when a job opens up, they think of you first. Right. And say, hey, uh, Conway's not working. Maybe he might be a fit for this entry-level job. Uh, so that's the thing I didn't quite understand about my internship. So I definitely didn't take full advantage of it. And it was just kind of dumb luck that like I had kept in touch with this one dude for my internship. Right. Um, but I definitely didn't didn't talk to the storyboard artists as much as I should have because I was ah, super, super shy and intimidated. And like these people worked on like dude, the director of that project directed on. He was no, he's one of the producers of Gargoyles. Mm -hmm. It was, uh, it was uh, Frank Parr was directing the project. I think he was one of the producers of Gargoyles. I think it was him and Wiseman. Uh, or maybe he was one of the directors of Gargoyles. But anyway, he worked on Gargoyles. And I loved that show so much. And I was super intimidated by him. Um, but yeah, it's... Uh, I, I'm reluctant to say, like, to bring up the college route. <laughs> because, like, there are a lot of colleges that are really not worth the money you oh yeah pay yeah to go we to just had our last episode or whatever a couple episodes ago we just did an art school episode where we were discussing yeah. that <laughs> so yeah i can't i can't bring myself to say don't go to college it's a waste of time and money um because i wouldn't be where i am without having gone to college exactly. um but it, it's like it's a weird way like thing that it like put me in the right place at the right time to get my foot in the door mm -hmm. it and it, it i met some of the right people through college like mm -hmm. jay o, i wouldn't i wouldn't have this job i wouldn't have my career without jay oliva because jay oliva was blunt enough to tell me i still needed to keep working after college keep working on my art and he recommended concept design academy to me mm -hmm. so i took his class again at concept design academy and then i took uh like david coleman's character design class. I love his uh, stuff. Jojo. Yeah, oh, he's oh, so good. And uh, Kevin Chen's like analytical figure drawing class, Peter Hans Viz, Vizcom class. Um, so I just, I kept taking classes there. Basically, l taking an honest look at my art skills and finding my uh, deficiencies. And I was lucky enough that uh, I could take classes at Concept Design Academy to start helping me overcome those deficiencies mm -hmm. but like i can't remember where exactly that was going but it, it kind of sprung off of the college is kind of a touchy subject because it is so expensive like god it is so expensive um and oh so that's what it was i can't quite bring myself to tell people you know like there have been times where parents have emailed me saying hey my kid wants to get into uh the animation industry what college they go to right and my response is like you know any number you can go to any number of colleges um but what you have to do is look at the uh faculty of mm -hmm. that department and then look them up on imdb and you have to and if you don't recognize any of the projects on first off if they don't have an imdb page <laughs> Red flag. <laughs> Second off, if you don't recognize any of the projects on their IMDb page, no, that's another red flag. And then third, if their projects, if they don't have any like current projects in the last decade or God, two decades, that's another red flag. Yeah. That's not automatically disqualifying because like one of my professors uh, in college 
I don't think she had worked in, you know, in actual animation in quite a while, but she was a, she directed a feature film and, and she uh, was like a Disney animator right. in like the eighties. And so it's like, this is a person who is clearly qualified to work, even though they actually, Oh, Look at IMDb. You recognize what they've done. It's like, oh, this is a person who has some high profile credits. And so like if you're getting people who it's like, I can't even find them on IMDb. I don't have any information on what they've done or like I don't recognize what they've done. That's a red flag for somebody who might be teaching because they can't be working, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, and that's the thing you really have to look out for with art schools. Um, because like, if you have an entire faculty of people who, with no industry experience, what the hell are they teaching? Right. And you're going to be paying them tens of thousands of dollars a year to teach you something like something that something question mark. I don't know. That doesn't (laughs) sound good. That doesn't sound like a good use of your money. Uh, you're better off sitting at home on Instagram, tracing Joaquin and, uh, reuse drawings from avatar mm-hmm. uh, that that's going to be a better use of your time and money um but uh but the, the real benefit of college is kind of the is is like the access to internships the act and kind of the access yeah really the access it provides um and then also just the the network mm-hmm. i mean i know lauren because we uh went to the same college years apart, but I think we connected through the uh, LMU alum Facebook group, right? Or maybe Animation Club? Yeah, and uh, and then we also attended screenings uh, later on after that when we had, like, I think it was like an LME Animation Club and all the alums that came with it. Uh, we go to oh, movie yeah. screenings and stuff in Hollywood. Yeah, the one at the Egyptian, right? The, uh, yeah. Uh, is it the Mexico Film Festival? Yes. In that like twenty, awesome. I think it was twenty fifteen. Yeah. Ooh, that was a long time ago. I don't <laughs> like to think of that. Yeah, I didn't want to bring it up, but you were like, "I got a job at twenty in twenty thirteen. I'm just like, I graduated high school like around that time. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh no, I'm getting to the age where I say, "Oh, don't tell me that." Uh, when I was uh, when I was on Young Justice, one of the directors, I was just casually talking to him about like kind of the stuff he'd worked on. He's like, oh, yeah, I worked on the uh, Sonic the Hedgehog cartoon. I'm like, wait, the Saturday AM one? He goes, <laughs> oh, yeah. I'm like, that was my favorite show when I was in second grade. And he's like, do not say that. <laughs> God, I'm getting so old. <laughs> oh, my God. Uh, but, yeah, so um, that was a really long and rambly, uh, not even ra- remotely complete answer to your question. Yeah. Um, it's kind of hard. It's kind of hard uh, because there are so many ways into the industry. Um, and I think those first two things are like really essential. Just mm-hmm. building your film libraries so that you can fi- find out the kind of filmmaker you want to be. And then um, just practicing and studying every day so that you have the, uh, the drawing chops to actually get a job. Mm-hmm. Those are so, so important. And those are two things you can do. Those are two things that are fun to do. Like you don't have to go to school to do those. Um, uh, networking is, it's so important and it's so hard because 
uh, most artists are like introverted weirdos. <laughs> and I say, and I say that from a very personal place because every single extroverted bone in my body is learned behavior. Um, <laughs> I am not that I do not have an ex. I, I, it is all learned behavior. Mm -hmm. I'm not extroverted by nature at all. Uh, this is some, like, I've just had to learn how to do that. Like just over years and years and years and years, or just learn how to talk to people. Um, and so when I say artists are introverted weirdos, I say that like mostly thinking of myself and how hard it was for me to force myself to network at first to go to events where I could network, mm -hmm. then to talk to people at those events that I don't know. Oh, tell me um, about it. <laughs> oh my God. It was like, my internship was so, I was just like, so like meek and scared of talking to anybody that I would basically only talk to like the PA and the coordinator mm -hmm. who like worked above me. Um, and then like occasion, there were like two like board artists who are particularly friendly and outgoing who I talked to. Oh, and a color designer who was particularly friendly and made a point to kind of like talk to me because he could clearly tell that I was just like a deer in the headlights. Um, <laughs> um, but networking is such an important part of getting into the industry because every time you see a job posting, like if a job posting goes up for my show, that I've known about that vacancy for weeks already mm -hmm. and I'm already reaching out to my friends saying, Hey, do you know anyone? Or, Hey, are you available? And, um, there's like a decent chance that the job, if it doesn't, if it hasn't been filled yet, that they are already people on their radar right. trying to, to fill it. So really like the networking, I don't know. I, I see some people, I used to joke that it was like, you know, animation just, like runs on raw nepotism but like i'm actually seeing people like saying that seriously now and that's not correct like in my whole you know in my career i have one very clear memory of somebody who was just a nepotism hire but like most of the time you have to have the skills to do the job also. right mm -hmm. and it's and the networking is networking is going to give you like a head of the line pass for being considered for a job Mm -hmm. But like, dude, I'm not going to hire somebody who can't do the job. I have enough on my plate already. I don't have time to do two people's jobs just because they're my buddy. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and like, dude, it definitely happens. Like I said, I have, I know one very specific, one very specific memory <laughs> from my career of somebody who's, was best friends with a producer. But, um, but yeah, like, networking is so vital because yeah that'll just put you on people's radar so that when there is a job opening they think of mm -hmm. you and like one thing you can do uh is uh animation guild has been doing portfolio reviews uh there have been people like there's been people who do uh <laughs> uh uh go to ctn and do free portfolio reviews outside of ctn god bless because mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah like, paying, I, paying for portfolio reviews is uh oh, it's, like, uh, it's already hard enough for for young artists trying to get 
seen that they have to pay I'm, to be seen. It's like no, just like just find I got another opinions. artist, get some feedback. Oh, I, I, I. I've got oh, opinions I, about CTN. Yeah, I, There's a reason I sat in McDonald's and gave free portfolio reviews last year. <laughs> I, I last year I worked staff at CTN. It was it was an interesting experience. We'll just leave it at that. I <laughs> I hear so many people with so many horror stories of like being volunteers at CTN. This was the first um, year they paid. To be fair, um, because I guess they probably and that was 2019. Yeah. Mm-hmm for this convention that's been going what at least a decade at that point <laughs> so that's why hey, it only took him a decade to start paying people Great. that's why there's the there's the chad designer con <laughs> <laughs> and the supreme light box oh <laughs> uh, i'm so bummed that like i'm so bummed that was it, it this would have been the first light box right uh, last year, a... actually, last year was the first light box, or for 2019, oh, okay. and then 2020 oh, okay. was the first time they went virtual. And actually, I think they did a pretty darn good job with it. Um, even going right down to, um, they modeled a whole like virtual artist alley. Yeah, they so they they, they were so extra. Down the alley. <laughs> it was like oh, it was super super cool. impressive. And um, what they did it was, was like a Second Life thing. Yeah, or it was like you know they they some they had a 3D probably. Um, rigor who just like you could like google maps through the artist alley it was it was cray oh that's cool yeah yeah and it it was cool because then you could go to each booth and uh it would be set up like a booth in a in in a big you know convention hall so you're you could just like hop spots between booths and you could go click on each of their like little backdrops which are their banners there, and then they are hot links embedded in different parts of the of the backdrop. So it was like, oh, cool. uh, so it would almost be like your poster or canvas board that would hang behind you at your table, and yeah. then it would take you to their website where they may or to their uh, or to their online store where they you can put in a discount code because you're an attendee that you get a certain discount on the merch and that kind of stuff. So oh, um, that's cool. I mean, I literally, I literally. Sp- sp- then all like I I think the only thing I got was like an entire brush set for Procreate Five, <laughs> and um, and it was the best pro- pr- purchase honestly because their brushes I'm gonna I already use every single day for work and so they're nice. like like gouache watercolor, uh comic Ooh. inking all that I mean it's really nice stuff if you know Max Packs yeah. it, it was Max Packs so they had like a a discount where I just like. I just kind of went crazy and got all the brushes plus a pack of like paper <laughs> textures. I kind of like, I'm going nuts with this, but it's all stuff I'm going to use. So yay. My illustrations are going to be so dope now. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh, but like, dude, conventions are such a cool place to like, to like go and meet people. Like, absolutely. Especially if you're taking, if you're doing like, I did a lot of classes at Concept Design Academy. And so, like, I would go to CTN, you know, years and years ago, and it would be cool because I'd I'd be like I would I'd like see friends from class, but they would be hanging out with people from like their first job, and so I would like, all you know, I'd slowly start to like, like you know, expand my network. Like, oh, this is so and so; he's a storyboard artist. Oh, like, could you look at my portfolio? Yeah, sure. And, you know, like, that's actually like how I met Chris Copeland for the first time. Uh, my friend was working on Transformers with him. He was on season one, I think. So I wasn't not, we were not there at the same time, but like, we just, we met each other through, 
a mutual friend at CTN and he was kind enough to like grab lunch with his total stranger who knew one of his friends mm -hmm. and gave me portfolio advice. Um, you know, stuff like that really stuck with me and it's kind of why I, I try to, you know, kind of like repay mm -hmm. it, you know, back into the world. Um, you know, cause nobody got where they are on their own. Right. Um, and I mean, maybe some people did, but most people who say that would be liars. Uh, yeah. <laughs> like I, I know, especially me, like I got to where I am, like on the shoulders of like an entire community of people who were, you know, going out of their way to help me look at my work, give me honest feedback, give me, uh, give me chances, give me, uh, you know, tips about opportunities. Uh, I mean, you know, even like, uh, you know, I think you, you asked like, how do you become a director? And I know I worked very hard as a storyboard artist, mm -hmm. but you know, a lot of it was, you know, also opportunity, uh, when rise of the turtles was staffing up they had filled all of their storyboard slots but they they asked if i wanted to be an assistant director um which was kind of like i kind of joked that was like the directing kitty <laughs> because i got to i got to kind of start learning what it meant to be a director without the actual accountability and responsibility of it so it was that was a godsend um and so i actually i actually worked uh my director was Brendan Clauher, and uh, <laughs> uh, we went to LMU together, and I was his TA for storyboarding class. Aww. Oh, wow. Uh, and so then, what, that was, you know, 10 years later or something like that, he was, he was my director. Uh, but it was awesome actually getting to work, you know, with and under him. Um, but yeah, it's, you know, it was, um, I guess I can't really... I'm not actually sure like what I would tell people who want to be directors other than like do a good job hard. <laughs> yeah. Like I feel like it's so unhelpful, but like do a good job uh, and you'll be noticed. Uh, now like there's, there's like a weird uh, like set of skills that nobody tells you about for directing. Mm -hmm. Like it's, there's like a lot of like management skills and I don't even know how you would showcase that as a storyboard artist. But it's like so essential to being a director. Oh yeah. Like being like organizational skills, communication skills, um, just being able to manage different personalities on your team. You know, some people need this kind of feedback. Some people need that kind of feedback and you can't cross the wires. Mm -hmm. it's, it's, oh yeah. Like I, I have stories yeah. about that, but essentially, you know, the biggest thing is like letting people like being honest with the people you work with in a way that like they can also be honest with you in return so there's you know mm -hmm. it's kind of like a two-way street as far as just like hey i'm not doing this to be an asshole but you know like like trying to also giving constructive criticism versus just saying like hey you suck like don't do that so and reading people yeah and, like you know all sorts of stuff it's so yeah like being constructive is so key um no like I don't know. I, whenever, whenever I call out a problem on something, I always try to present a solution also. Cause I hate, mm -hmm. like, I never want to be the guy that like walks into the room with the baseball bat and then just smashes everything. <laughs> mm -hmm. And then says, all right, uh, clean it up and fix everything. And then walks out. 
Like I want to like <laughs> if I'm going to break something, I want to at least be able to tell someone like how I think you might be able to fix it. Uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> but yeah, like I guess I, don't know, I guess I haven't really thought about like advice for like how you become a director. <laughs> um I guess what I I've recommended a few artists for directing jobs and there's a few things that made me recommend those artists and it's not just having like cool shots but it's having like it it's being able to look at a storyboard or sorry being able to look at a script and really bring out this like really being able to like like hone in on like the key po- like points in the story and you know, or being able to like best fo- like being able to look at something and go okay this is what the intent of this scene is and these are some things i can do to really make that intent sing mm-hmm. uh these are some like character this is like some some like subtle character acting i can layer in to really drive this point home this is um it's stuff like that um that really uh really shows that you're thinking about story on a different level mm-hmm. and another thing that i i know is like just make it make it known that you want to direct that way you'll that way people will at least think about you mm-hmm. like that because um, I, I know for example people who have wanted to direct but they never really told their you know the the supervisors on their projects mm-hmm. and you know and then so years would go by and like no one's no one's noticing me no one's offering me the jobs and it's it's you know and the producers would say oh i had no idea they wanted mm-hmm. to uh, i probably i could have told them you know that they would should do this this and this if they actually want to take that step yeah i think that's like also like realistic advice too because when you deal with a lot of, you know, generally introverted people, like, you know, again, like you said, you have to kind of learn all those skills about being communicative and, like, trusting other people, like, you know, to have that support system, I guess, you know, like, making sure your intentions mm-hmm. are, you know, correct and stuff like that. But again, like, that's a whole, like, another thing. Yeah. But, um... You know, go, one, go one thing I think that one thing I, I, I would say to do, like, if you want to be a director, make sure that you are collaborative and make sure that you're a problem solver. Mm-hmm. Don't be one of those people that gets a bad script and just complains about it. Uh, because mm-hmm. I'll tell you right now, like, if, if I just see somebody like bitching and moaning about a script, uh, rather than actually looking at, all right, well, how can I fix this? How can I make the best version of this terrible script? Uh, like I'm never going to recommend someone that only complains because like so much of the job is problem solving Mm -hmm. and being collaborative is such a big part of it. And I'm pretty sure that was a big part of what helped me get promoted is just my ability um, or, you know, the effort I put into, um, I think I talked about it earlier when I was describing my job, you know, a lot of it is making sure like the producer's vision is executed on the screen it and it it really like i really do mean that it's it's um 
whenever I find something that I think is wrong with an episode, I usually try not to get focused on my solution. I usually try to make sure that, uh, I usually try to make sure that we at least we are agreeing on the problem Mm -hmm. so that we can find a solution that makes everybody happy. Um, and you know, I try really hard not to get married to a particular solution to a problem. So that, cause you know, at the end of the day, like if I, um, I'm trying to think of an example, but, um, or even like a, just a stupid hypothetical, you know, like if, I don't know, I can't think of a stupid hypothetical, but it's, yeah, it's, it's really, it's, it's being able to articulate what the problem is. And then I'll always pitch my solution to Mm -hmm. it, but I'll try really hard not to get married to that solution because sometimes my solution will, uh, have its own problems. Like, uh, there there were times where I would pitch a solution and the producers and writers would go, oh, we actually can't do that because this line exists uh, because network said this was unclear and they asked for something to clarify this plot, plot point, mm-hmm. which is why this line is here. So we can't do your solution because that's what network asked us not right. to do. So it's like, okay, mm-hmm. well, at least we agree, you know, my solution's out the door or out the window, but at least we agree that there is a problem. So let's talk about something. Let's try to find something that uh, uh, solves the problem, but doesn't uh, bump on, solves the problem, doesn't bump on the network uh, issue, mm-hmm. um, while also, you know, just telling a good story. Mm-hmm. And I think I think that is something that's got really going to set you apart uh, as a somebody who is in if you're if you're able to collaborate like that people above you are going to go that's someone i can work mm-hmm. with that's someone who's going to do a great job uh running a team if you're fighting the directors or if you're fighting the producers and writers if you're arguing with them all the time they're going to go man i don't care how great their stuff is that person is like i I don't want to promote them and just have arguments all the time. Right. Um, yeah. So like really, really think about the way you like collaborate, go out of your way to collaborate or be collaborative. And honestly, there are, there are very few times where I um, didn't, there are very, there are very few times where I was unhappy with the solution we came out of the room with. Uh, to get working through mm-hmm. it together. So at the end of the day, I try to really focus on, hey, as long as this, as long as the problem is solved, I'm open to any solution. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's a good way to put it. Um, all right, I'm I'm out of questions, Lauren. Are you good, or how are you feeling? <laughs> <laughs> I- I think that answered every single question that I possibly could have had, and that's a good thing because <laughs> I, I, I mean that's good. I, it, this was like the absolute perfect way to wrap it up, honestly, because it's it is. Uh, there's so much advice in there, and and so many little tidbits for everybody in there that does want to go down this path. Uh, so yeah, it's like yeah, be it be. I, I, it's something I feel like it's it we've heard it in, from other guests as well and so just to emphasize the importance of it hearing it from uh from other people uh and from hearing it from jj today is that yeah just like 
you gotta work at your craft. You gotta so basically watch a lot of movies, draw, make friends, talk. And, <laughs> and the nice thing is like and and, and use and use resources. <laughs> like everyone in animations like most of us are like introverted and awkward. So like you're in good company. Just, yeah, as long you as know. you own it, you know. <laughs> yeah, like you know, like it's yeah, like <laughs> you know, there's a lot of people that are going to share a lot of common interests with you and a lot of very niche interests also. So like it's a it's really good company. Uh, there's a lot of really good people in this industry and it's, it's like, it's, it's like a real, like just blessing to, to be in this line of work. Like, man, there, there are times where like as hard as my day was, like I just sit back and go, yeah, but I just got paid really good money to draw pictures all day. <laughs> like, you know, like, I know people that are like accountants and just do nothing but like tax returns who don't make as good of money as people in animation oh, do. Yeah. And so it's like, it, it's, it, it is hard and it is so labor intensive, but it is also such a fun job. At least I've been blessed. I've been lucky enough that, you know, I spent my career working with good people on good crews, on good shows at good studios mm-hmm. That, yeah, you know, sometimes, you know, a certain studio will cancel a show halfway through the second season, <laughs> but, you know, still, like, it's, you know, it's still, it's like the environment that, uh, the environment at, you know, Nickelodeon is really, I really love working there, and it's um, a really, I, I've, I've had a really great time working there, and hope to continue working there. Oh, and where can uh, where can people find you, JJ, on the social media so they can check out your stuff as well uh, and maybe talk to you? <laughs> I am on Twitter. Uh, if you're looking at any Rise of the Ninja Turtles tag, I'm probably jumping in like a little goblin to you know drop memes and stuff. Um, <laughs> I, I actually don't uh, remember my Twitter handle. <laughs> Oh that's why that's why I'm stalling as I as I look up Twitter. <laughs> you can find me at JJ underscore Conway. That's two J's, not J. Yeah, as I was just about to say, I'm like, I can pull you up real fast. Yeah. <laughs> I was I was gonna say before this, so like um we do headshots for all our guests, like custom like, you know, of like the show their their show style. So we were like, we can't find pictures of JJ because there's no pictures of IMDb. So I, I ended up having to go on your LinkedIn. And I'm just like, oh, man, that's a white guy. So, you know. That's... <laughs> oh, man, that's if it's the picture I'm thinking of, that's like a really respectable picture of me. <laughs> that, is, that is not like my friend was just like literally just yesterday. He's like, you still have that Joker picture for your Twitter icon like yeah i guess i've had that for like 12 years that picture's like 12 years old or something like that it's fine (laughs) it's like it's like either way we'll we'll send you we'll send you a headshot and it's our little goodie to you for being our guest and uh oh you can you can use it to replace your creepy joker profile picture there you go (laughs) And people will be like, relevant? oh my god, he changed it. 
What happened? Something happened. He changed it. Uh oh, just did he need to get a, a respectable job or something? <laughs> oh no, he's turned into an accountant. <laughs> oh no, he's doing tax returns now. <laughs> Nothing against people that do tax returns. I admire your ability to do uh to, to do something of that kind of responsibility. Uh th- that is a, an actual high stakes job. <laughs> I, I was I someone got really mad at me at an animation guild meeting because I because they they were talking about like how important animation is and, and I said something like man like what's the worst that's gonna happen if we fuck up our job an episode goes overseas late <laughs> like like, <laughs> like this is a we're not ER nurses who are like, <laughs> who if, if they screw up someone's gonna freaking die like. Ooh, a shipment goes to Australia tomorrow. <laughs> Ooh, worst, worst, worst case scenario. If I do my job wrong, the episode's not gonna an eleven minute episode's not gonna be good. Like, <laughs> oh my god. Ah. Well, someone will care. I'm so, I'm so glad. Yeah, someone might not like be an dead, but someone will care. If they screw up someone's tax returns, that poor person who paid good money uh, to that accountant, <laughs> they're going to be in trouble with the IRS, and they got a whole mess to untangle. Like That's an actual high-stakes job. Yeah. <laughs> oh, God. Okay, so, um, and then yeah. I'll do my the usual outro stuff so if you're if you're new i guess welcome teenage mutant ninja turtle fans i do videos on the internet sometimes so um you can find the main channel like everywhere just type in i love kim possible a lot i promise i'm not 15 and subscribe there um (laughs) i think like describe this to jj who probably has like zero context so um, and then, you know, we put the podcast out um, on on all the pl- SoundCloud and, and iTunes and stuff and, at Animation Communication. And then Twitter is at KP Podcasts. And we do episodes every Wednesday unless something happens, like, which happens. So, like, we took, like, a two-week long break, like, recently. <laughs> just like, yeah, it's fine. You know, what are people going to do? <laughs> They can just rewatch some old ones. They're long. Did your whole Twitter feed explode? Like, oh my god, where are they? Where are they? <gasps> Something happened. <laughs> just like you know how it's like. Otherwise, our other accounts are alive on Twitter, so they just know we're functioning. <laughs> they know we're out there. They, they I don't know. Functioning is like, uh. a generous word. <laughs> I saw you. I saw you post on your other account. Why are you not uploading a new podcast? <laughs> Let me tell you, that is a great, like, way to see if people are actually, like, l- like, if you email them, if they're actually, like, ignoring you, or if they're just, like, haven't just gotten around to it. Because they're, they're posting constantly <laughs> on their social media, but they're, they're like, it's been three weeks, you haven't answered my email, then, then you know. So that's, that's my other tip. <laughs> I'm busy, I go on social media to post cat pictures and procrastinate. <laughs> oh my god, so much anxiety. But, um... Yeah, thanks for being on, JJ. You were really fun and yeah, really informative. So. And oh, my pleasure. Like, like, I was glad to have this mini reunion with you on here. Yeah, it's <laughs> yeah, it's good to uh, reconnect over Discord in these COVID times. Um. <laughs> <laughs> we made it work. It's fine. Yeah, totally. 
I don't know. It's 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 one of the cool things of, about I don't know just the way we ever the whole world has had to like figure out how to you know make things happen right now is like I don't know the world's kind of become smaller because now I'm like mm-hmm. I'm connecting with people all over the world and it's I don't know you know it's just like on my Discord you know I got friends literally all over the place uh, and so it's I don't know it's kind of it's kind of cool it's made the world a little smaller in a good way I think so was it a because, small you know, world after all. But he just just leaves. Yeah. (laughs) 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 Well, thank you, thank you again so much for joining us, JJ. This is this was was fun, really fun. So thank you. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, uh, thanks for having me, and uh, yeah. Have a good one. Yeah, thanks you too. And and thank you everybody for tuning in. And tune in next time when we have either us or a guest. We won't tell you. I don't know. It depends. <laughs> depends what we feel like. Depends who will answer our emails. <laughs> okay. Bye everyone. Right, bye guys. Have a good week. Bye. <laughs> bye. Woo. Thank you so much for listening to Animation Communication on YouTube, Spotify, or your favorite podcast provider. We are really hoping this show makes a difference in how people view animation and media, as well as giving and providing advice for people all over the world who like or want to join the animation or media industry. If you liked what you heard, please remember to subscribe and rate those five stars, as well as tell your friends. Don't forget to subscribe to our main YouTube channel, I Love Kim Possible A Lot, and turn those notifications on. My name is Scribbler, and you have been listening to Animation Communication.